blessed songs. Mommy's here, Daddy's gone. Broken promises, gin and rye. All the mean and hurtful things that make baby Jesus cry. Hello and welcome to Movies with Gravy, normally a podcast where we discuss under-the-radar new releases and the films we believe inspired them, but not today. Today we're kicking off a new quarterly series called From Top to Bottom, where we cover the entire oeuvre of a filmmaker from top to bottom in 90 minutes. Yikes. And first up is one of the most eccentric, influential, iconic filmmakers to emerge in the past 40 years, Brooklyn's own Spike Lee. And joining us to discuss every film, every short, every everything Spike Lee has directed is the co-host of the Screen Drafts podcast, co-host of Vidiot's Trivia in Los Angeles, and the manager of the newly renovated, Netflix-owned, American Cinematheque-run, Arrow Theater in Santa Monica, <laughs> the Bob Dylan of the Santa Monica Trailer Park, Mr. Ryan Marker. Wow. Billy Ray. What a what a what an what ambling a introduction that was. <laughs> it was fantastic. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Thank you for inviting me on the on to movies with gravy. I love this podcast, of course. Um, one of my favorites. I listen to it regularly. I will also say I need to amend your introduction oh. and say that the Egyptian is owned by the by the oh. grand Netflix. The Arrow uh, is not. I was mistaken. The Arrow is is privately owned by a by a, a private owner. Okay. Who we re- who we rent it from. Okay. So Netflix has no no hands in this Arrow over here. That's strictly the American Cinematheque, and primarily me, who has lived here for the past two months, getting this puppy ready to go. And so. and when is that puppy ready to go? It's in June, right? June 10th. June, June 10th is opening night, opening with In the Heights. Oh, gosh. Um, so, so you're going to get me into that, right? <laughs> it's, it's packed up, Billy, right? God damn it. I can watch. I can stand in the back. <laughs> in this st- era of COVID, I can't have people standing in the back anymore. <laughs> I can stand on top of a ladder. I can be on the heights as I watch In the Heights. <laughs> I think I, I I know this is not PC, but I I see us like getting you in a wheelchair, and that's how we get you in you know just get you an ADA seat. I do technically and, uh, have a separated shoulder right now, so we can make something happen. Perfect. Okay, L- let's talk after the show about this. But I am excited <laughs> that I will get to uh, experience the Arrow at some point again before I uh, venture off to Seattle. So that's yes. exciting. Yes. No. And then it's all seventy millimeter this month. We're we're going big. We're going large. Uh, so it's 2001. It's Lawrence of Arabia, obviously the oh. two the two class, classics we always play. But it, we're also doing Malcolm X, which we'll be speaking about tonight in 70 yes. millimeter. Yes, uh, that's exciting. Hugely exciting. Uh, we're doing uh, Tenant, obviously in 70 millimeter. We're doing. Oh, uh, so you're uh, doing uh, you're doing Roman Polanski's The Tenant. <laughs> In 70 mil. Wow, I've never imagined that film in 70 millimeter. But the more I think about it, uh, no. No, 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 no. You don't We're need doing, to see. Uh, <laughs> you don't need to see Polanski that big. No, he's he's short and he's diminutive. Uh, but we, we're also doing some P.T. Anderson, The Master, and Inherent Vice, both on seventy millimeter. So yeah, yeah. Head on over to um, AmericanCinematheque.com. There are still tickets available for a lot of these things, and uh, I'm excited, man. Oh, I'm, well, pri- do I'm me, primed. Do me a favor with Inherent Vice. Uh, when it when it arrives, take the seventy millimeter film reels. Uh, just gather them up, uh, pour gasoline all over them, and burn them. I knew, I knew where or, this was headed. Or, uh, let, me, let me quote Night of the Living Dead. 
burn them. Soak them with gasoline and burn them. Okay. That's, That's okay, my feelings Billy. on inherent vice. Okay, Billy Ray, you're starting this in an incendiary way, of course. Um, well, so... <laughs> Yes, true I, to form. Well, yeah, I mean, we're talking about Spike Lee, one of the most yeah. incendiary filmmakers in the world. That's right. So that's that's, that's perfectly right. valid. Um, so, what did you think when I messaged you and said, "Hey, Ryan, want to watch every Spike Lee and talk about them in only ninety minutes?" <laughs> what did I think? I just I thought it was a it it sounded like a a wild experiment that, of course, I'm down for. Um, I have to say, I was. Um, I, I really didn't know what I was getting myself into, to be quite honest. I, I, I hadn't seen a lot of these movies in 20 years or more. I mean, and some of the movies, I'd say 50% of the movies I had not seen ever. So honestly, I just kind of didn't think it through. I also didn't realize he had made as many movies as, he's, as he has. Not to mention all the other you know pieces of media he's, he's filmed throughout the years as well. And that is kind of an overwhelming experience. Just like his non-movie you know, yeah. things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been a wild ride. I, I was glad we were going to do this a couple of weeks ago. I, it was, we, we talked before the show. Like I was very thankful when you were like, Hey, let's push this a couple yeah. more weeks. It gave me a chance to fit in like 10 more. Yeah. And, and, and those 10 ended up being like really big ones for me. It's really interesting yeah. how, when you dig in, you're like, Holy shit, this is a real beauty. In the middle yeah. of the f- filmography, you just don't expect it. So, um, yeah, no, this has been a very rich, enriching experience for me. So I'm really excited to talk about these things tonight. Yeah, I, um, I agree. I, I, you know, I, I already had a pretty, I was already pretty familiar with most of his work, with some notable exceptions. And as we talked about before we started recording, I wasn't able to get to a hundred percent of these. Yeah. Uh, for a lot of reasons that some of them were just really difficult to find for me. Right. And then one, which I won't mention till we get there, frankly, is entirely my fault. For some reason, it fell through the cracks. And I literally noticed it about a, an hour ago. I was so proud of myself and I was going through it. And I was like, holy shit, I didn't see this film. And I'm going to be really filled with shame when we get to it. But wow. I, will, I will take my love. which one that is. Uh, well, you're going to be I'm in placing suspense. my bets. So the idea of this is, as we said earlier, we're going to talk about his entire oeuvre as much as possible. We're going to try to do it in as close to 90 minutes as we can for no yeah. other reason than because I want to. And, um, and then we're going to rank our top five Spike Lee films, um, yes. which I think is exciting. We won't be drafting them, which is what you're familiar with, with the Screen Drafts podcast. We'll just be ranking them, which is, yeah. you know, we're still making a list, but it's not really competitive. It's just more about the adoration of Spike Lee. And, you know, Spike Lee for me, just kind of a general discussion of Spike before we get started yeah. But what I love about Spike Lee and have always loved about Spike Lee is the messiness and the inconsistencies. And he reminds me a lot of John Waters in a weird uh-huh. way. They make totally different kinds of films, but they're both filmmakers who are, I'll use that word you said earlier, incendiary, but they're also messy. Like, yeah. they're, none of their, I mean, Sp- I would say Spike Lee has more 
close to, if not perfect, films than than Waters does. Sure. But they have that messiness. They have that. You you t- you can tell you're watching a filmmaker who is just literally going balls to the wall and and throwing it at the at the wall and seeing what sticks. And they've got something they want to say, and they've got a burning desire to communicate it. And how they get there sometimes is perfect. Sometimes it is just all over the place. Right. And but I love that about him. I I think that's a really remarkable thing about Spike Lee. Yeah, you know, and I it's funny you should mention the name Bob Dylan. I I'm reminded of Bob Dylan when I when I um when I see Spike Lee's work because I do feel like they have a similar I mean messiness is a great word, but I think it's also an artistic kind of exploring the chaos, you yeah. know? I mean, he's they're both very strongly interested in human nature and how that is not something you can predict, but yet at the same time there are patterns. And I think that it's really interesting when you find artists who have the balls uh, or the courage, you know, to, to really kind of explore that and not feel hindered by maybe not knowing where this is going or yeah. maybe not having a quote unquote point, you know, yeah. like everybody's very interested in the, uh, the conclusion of a movie. But I always get the feeling that Spike Lee is interested in the journey. Yeah. And his journey with the movie is just as important as the journey within the movie itself. And, you know, oftentimes they're not completely shambolic and bizarre. I mean, yeah. there's oftentimes a point that comes through the chaos, but you sort of have to kind of amble with him as he yeah. sort of finds his way through. And I, I just find that unpredictability like you really exciting for an artist and in, 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 in movies and for him to do that for 30 odd years, I think is also kind of a, you know, in and of itself, a journey that he was never, I don't know, you know, I feel like if I had that type of like ethos as an artist, I would get exhausted at a certain point and yeah. feel like the pressure and the, but these guys make it seem like it's easy, you know, and they just kind yeah. of brush off criticism yeah. none of that really matters and they keep going it's 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 an amazing thing and and he's one of you know one of the greats in terms of that so and and you never like i never i never lose the impression that he knows what he's doing when he's doing like he can make films that are so polished and so together and so mainstream and so you know he's a master of the craft in that way, but then he can also make something that is so experimental and so just sort of out there in the ether. And in a lot of ways, I feel like I feel like he, like you said, he's sort of finding he's sort of finding these things as he goes along. In a similar way, I would I would say to Terrence Malick in a lot of ways, who is mm-hmm. sort of is very much about one of those filmmakers who's sort of finding the narrative as he goes along. Right. And um, you know, obviously, I would say Spike is, has a has a better grasp on narrative. Than, than Terrence Malick does. And genre for that matter. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, he's not afraid to de- delve no. into any genre. I mean, he he's done that. drama, comedy, horror, action, thriller. Like, he's yeah. remakes. Like, he's done it all. And <laughs> yeah. he's he's done it all. And, um, and that's what's exciting about that entire filmography, um, which, you know... You know, we might as well just dive into. It. We can talk more about Spike as we go along, but yeah. um, uh, but as soon as I, as soon as we kick off, that's when the clock's going to start. Okay. And so, uh, so it's it's nine fifteen where we're recording. God, so we, we might as well kick it off. That way, we know at ten forty five, uh, we it's over. We got some splaining to do. <laughs> um, but since you're the guest, Ryan, and 
I want to have you kick us off with a discussion of Spike's very first film, his student film, his thesis film, right. Joe's Bedsty Barbershop. We cut heads. Um, this is uh, I don't have too much to say about this one. You know, honest to God, like I love this little movie. I haven't seen it since college. <laughs> this is one I, I couldn't find this anywhere. Yeah. Um, but it is a great movie. It's a lot of fun. I remember it like clear as day. It's kind of. I feel like you know what I remember from from college was that they taught it as as perfect short film, which short films have their own sort of trajectory and you know the way those films are made. You sort of have to have a grasp very clearly of who you are and what you want to say within a very short amount of time. And what I do remember from this movie is that it had a very clear voice, and it also had kind of had no antecedent before it. Before it, I don't really think of any other short film that yeah. has as much kind of like i don't know just character and and yeah comedy and and, and flavor as this movie uh so yeah this is this is a great little a great little movie if yeah. you can find it it's probably on youtube I yeah it's really hard to find i saw it years ago too and was not able to rewatch it for this i have pretty vivid memories of it because i do think if you're i mean this tells you what the next like four or five films of his career, what you're in for. This right. is a good precursor to that. And some notable things, you know, of course this was shot by Ernest Dickerson, but it was assistant directed by Ang Lee, oh, who shit. was one of his classmates. And so wow. Ang Lee was the assistant director on that. So it's like, it's got a weird little pedigree. And um, I, it's, it's, it's a really fun, you know, it's an hour long. It's, it's, it's a nice sort of um, sort of precursor to what he would end up doing. Right. And so if folks can find it, which I couldn't find it on YouTube, I couldn't find it anywhere. Wow. Yeah. So I think it's just really, really difficult to find right now. I don't think it ever made it to DVD. I remember we had yeah. it on VHS in our in our school library. Yeah. But yeah. Wow. I didn't know that about Ang Lee. That's fantastic. Yeah. He really that I have to say that that's another thing about Spike Lee that hadn't really. I think you know you hadn't gotten. Um, he comes from that time period of like you know uh, NYU film school. Like that is the classic you know, time period of the eighties when yeah. film school was really becoming a thing. And Oliver Stone was kind of that first and, you know, Martin Scorsese's teaching there and like Paul Schrader's teaching there. It's kind of yeah. like, what the fuck, you know, just as a film student coming up in New York city, that must've been just an ex exhilarating experience to kind of listen to these greats who had just made, yeah. and we're still making like incredible movies. I mean, Scorsese hadn't even really started his career, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. So yeah, uh, that that's that's cool. Um, well, um, that short film was made in 1983, but his first feature film came yeah. out in 1986, uh, and it is "She's Gotta Have It," uh, not the Netflix it. series, uh, which is um, which I have not watched the Netflix series, but I've heard really good things about it. Um, "She's Gotta Have It" is about uh, Nola Darling, uh, who is uh, a graphic artist who's living in Go Figure. Brooklyn right. and it's about the many men in her life and it's about her sort of um, coming to terms with her own sexuality and how she wants to live her life and it's really a film about sort of monogamy and figuring out you know who you want to be in that department and how you want to be there it is a very I think empowering film um, I had not seen this in a very long time but I did rewatch this one and I think I enjoyed it uh, much more than I did the first time I saw it. I think a lot. Of, I think enough time had passed where I could really start appreciating this one, and um, yeah, I think I think she is just a really like strong, interesting, 
uh, female character from an 80s film, which we didn't get as many of those as we should have, and it featuring some fantastic performances. Tracy Camilla Johns, who plays Nola Darling in the film, who a lot of folks know from probably the Tone Loke video, Wild Thing. She's been <laughs> in some, she was in some other uh, Spike Lee films. And um, yeah, I, I was I was really sort of I, I would say I was blown away by this one on the rewatch, but I certainly re- walked away with it with more than I got on the first watch. Yeah, Billy Ray, let me um, let me say that you are going to love the Netflix series. Then oh. I have to say because I mean, here's the thing: I feel like she's got to have it. Kind of kicks off a big part of uh, the conversation. That comes up when we bring when we really talk about Spike Lee's work, as as far as my research kind of has has gained. I mean, of, of course, race plays a huge part in a lot of his movies, but sexual politics is honestly like at the forefront of his brain, you know, for most of his career. I mean, that much as much as anything else. Let's put it that way. And I think that she's got to have it pretty much contains all that. He's been criticized for not really writing great women characters. And I've never quite understood that yeah. that criticism, to be quite honest. I think that, you know, what he does show very often is that women are far more persecuted than black men, you know. And I think that comes through in a lot of his films. The women are oftentimes the victims of his films. And yet at the same time, they are often super strong, awesome people who have who are able to overcome all of that yeah. sexism. And all yeah. of that racism at the same time. And I think she's got to have it. When I watched it again, I was just so blown away that in 84 minutes, it's kind of like what you said about uh, Bed-Stuy. It, it captures everything you're going to see. It's a little messy. It's super sexy. It's very fucking funny. Um, Spike is great as Mars Blackman. Yeah. Uh, you know, I love uh, her, her neighbor, the, the lesbian that sort of tries to seduce her. Yes. Uh, but that whole aspect, I think, is just kind of fascinating. I have to say, for a movie that kind of is about sexual politics from a really young guy, um, this movie, it's amazing to me how how not that often Spike crosses the line where you're like, okay, dude, like, you've... You know what I mean? You're canceled. Like, this is not yeah. good. Like, it's amazing that he plays with that line every time. Kind of going back to that Bob Dylan analogy, too, who is very similar. They enjoy sort of, again, exploring sexual politics and how, you know, I mean, essentially this is 1986. And, you know, it's still an argument today, this whole idea that a, a guy can can fuck anybody he wants, as you know, and a female is sort of, you know, still kind of um conforming to that you know they're they're seen differently if they want to try out different things and experiment and i I just find that for 1986 for such a fucking revolutionary first movie you know there may be problems with it i'm you know i've certainly you know i'm not going to say it's not uh immune to that but the snappiness the fun I don't know. It's a blast, and I think I I challenge anybody to really walk away and go. I have major problems with that movie, and it just doesn't work. Yeah, because it's like yeah. it's such a kind of seamless first film, and I would stand it up against a lot of great filmmakers' first films and say yeah. that it, it's yeah. a pretty visionary and and succeeds in its vision. Yeah, um, I um, would say I would say for that to be your first film and to, for you to just dive in headfirst tackling something like gender inequality and like yeah. things like that. I think that's pretty impressive. And you know, 
Uh, yeah, this film has some problematic aspects of it too, and I would I would argue that they remade this film with a male lead for Boomerang, but um, <laughs> years later, a, a far inferior film, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is just kind of a a, a wham bang first feature for for you know anybody, and you know it's weird to me how many people, and, and I say this from previous experience programming with some different folks who think that Do the Right Thing is his first film. Yeah, there are a lot of people who think who still have this idea that Do the Right Thing was his first film, and but I mean obviously if Do the Right Thing was his first film to come out of the gate with that would be insane. That's, but that's, it's no less of an accomplishment to come out of the gate with She's Got to Have It. I mean, yeah, yeah. This film it reminds really, me of Mean Streets. People think of Mean Streets as their as his first. Yeah, and you're like, no, it's actually like his third or something. You know, yeah. Like, and don't shortchange Alice doesn't live here anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. Or Boxcar Bertha, for that matter. Yeah, Boxcar Bertha, right. Um, well, so, um, yeah, I, lo- I love that one. I, I, but really, by all means, I guarantee you will fucking love the TV show. It's two yeah. seasons long. Basically, it's amazing how he holds he holds the story and then elaborates on it using all brand new kind of 2020 characters. And I'm telling you, they're all there. Like the fr- the the premise of the film is all there. It's just elaborated upon in so many different ways, and yeah. it's just it's really fun. I can't remember her name, but the main, but the the woman who plays Nora is uh, uh, incredible. Oh incredible. yeah, yeah. It's um 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 Tracy Camilla Johns. No, no, no. In the show. In the oh, there's the show. The, the show. show. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super, super great. Oh. Yeah, I will definitely check that out. It's been on my it's been on my list for a while. Yeah, you'll love, you'll breeze through um, it. Well, from She's Gotta Have It to I've Gotta Have You Tell Me What You Thought of School Days. <laughs> wow. I'm going to try to find these for each one and see if I can yeah, just I, keep I it can going. Tell. I can tell. Um, School Days, super fucking weird movie. To me, this was like, okay, this is where we get wacky with Spike. Yep, same. This is where he was like, fuck it, let's just do this, you know, or and this, and this, and this. Um, it's an odd, odd film. It's essentially, it's about... Uh, a black college, Morehouse College, um, and uh, it's about the fraternity. well. The college is the college is Mission College, Mission but it's college. based on based on Morehouse, based where he on went Morehouse, to school. which yeah. is where Spike went. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's about the fraternities and sororities that uh, that reside there. And you know, it's um, a fascinating film. I think in ter- in terms of an examination of you know fraternity life, which is always a toxic environment. And how, and it's really a toxic film in a lot of ways. But that is sort of part of the point. I think that there's a, a commentary in this film. There's a lot of weird diversions in this film. I will say this actually speaks very highly to uh, Billy Ray, your your messiness theory. Yeah. This kind of he was just like, let's just be weird. Um, and there's musical numbers, and um, I don't I don't know. Uh, there's a lot to be said about this movie. Uh, Big Brother Almighty is uh, played by who's that guy? Uh, is it Esposito? Oh yeah, Giancarlo Esposito. And he is—it's um, a hard movie to watch in some ways. He—he—he uh, he, he insists that his girlfriend, you know, prove her love to him, and and there's a kind of fraternal fraternity aspect to the way he treats his girlfriend, and it's—it's it's harsh to watch, you yeah. know. And it's funny because I juxtapose this. A lot of these characters, uh, not characters, but actors, went on to be in a different world, which was the Cosby Show uh, spinoff about yeah. um, college life for Lisa Bonet's character. Uh, 
yeah, I can't remember her name. Denise. Yeah, Denise um, Huxtable. And it's just funny to juxtapose this with that because this is so fucking dark and so I'm, you know, just so kind of in a weird way militant. You know what I mean? Mm. There's kind of a chaotic, um, kind of violent energy to this movie that really kind of is the complete opposite of A Different World, which was a very kind of groundbreaking show about, you know, uh, topics, very yeah. serious topics. Um, but, you know, I don't know. This is this is one where I think you can start the argument that Lee, uh, you know, sort of brutalizes his women, his yeah. women characters, because yeah. it's just a tough road on the flip end. That is the point of this film. It is truly yeah. about how leave uh, leave young people to their to their own in terms of giving them the freedom uh, to behave like animals. They will, you know. Yeah. There's there's a real brutality to this movie that I don't know. What did you think of this one? Yeah, I had very similar thoughts on it. Um, this was not a film that for me, and I, I, this was a film that I had seen years ago, uh-huh. and. And I, I don't remember having very fond memories of the film the first time I saw it, and it didn't really change this time. I agree with the brutality comment. I also just don't think the women in this film are given much agency yeah. uh, outside of the way that they're being mistreated, which I, I, I found really disturbing. Um, I, I, you know, I feel like, you know, I feel like this is a personal film for him because he's talking about his college experience, and he's like, and but at the same time, it just feels so unnecessarily brutal like yeah like to the point of like you could have reined that in 50 percent, and it still would have been impactful mm-hmm. and you know it went I, I i will say i mean as much as i say that i mean there's i mean there's there would be no dear white people without this film True. there would be no higher learning without this film there would be right. no hell there'd be i don't i think this i think pitch perfect owes a lot to this film frankly um yeah. But I, I just couldn't get on the wavelength of this one at, at all. And I think a lot of that is some of the, I don't know, some of the performances in this film are just so heightened and so I, I found them to be unrealistic in a lot of ways. And and I had a problem with that. This was this was to me probably the most problematic film for me of the rewatch that I saw, just in terms yeah. of my relationship to it. I was as I was watching it the whole time I was just like uh, Spike, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he's spoken of that, that yeah. prior to do the right thing and after she's got to have it, he d- he had a hard time kind of finding what he wanted to say next. And yeah. I think you can kind of feel that in this movie. There are some really great things about it. I love Tisha Campbell. Yeah. Uh, she's great. Um, she does the best is- she can with that role. Yeah, the score is his dad's score, and all of the all of Bill Lee's scores are like fucking phenomenal. Um, before he passed away, um, I think that this is one of the weirdest Spike Lee performances as half pint. Yeah, and, like it it's is. sort of like bizarre, like with the bald, like the shaved head, and you know, and it's just I hate. I always hate seeing like hazing. It's just the fucking worst. Anytime I see hazing, I just have like PTSD about like you know, being bullied and it's just fucked up. It's a crazy movie, but you know, like I cannot say that I think it's a bad movie. I just think that it's, um, I think you spoke to it. There's, I feel like it could have used an entry character an entry, some, you know, a young freshman starting, who's kind of walking into this crazy college, you know, but instead it dumps you in the middle of it. Lawrence Fishburne is like, you know, kind of 
insanely loud and you know um uh yeah Lord, uh esposito is yeah. kind of he, he's just harsh you know it's really just very. difficult to watch very sexist and just disgusting so uh yeah school days is an is an odd film who played the principal I can't remember. There was some a famous actor oh, who played the principal. Hold on, and he was really good. Um, um hold on. Uh, it is. It's not Ossie Davis. No, he plays he, the coach. Right, right, right. Is it um, um John Seneca? Mm-hmm. That's right. John yeah, John Seneca. Seneca. Yeah. yeah, so good. You know. <laughs> um. So anyway, yeah, School Days is fascinating. Fascinating second film. Yeah, and yeah, very much so. And I don't think it's going to be coming up in our top five list later, but we'll see. see. Um, But, you know, I think now it's time to probably do the right thing and move on to a new title, which happens to be (gasps) Do the Right Thing. I thought you were going to skip it. No, I I, I, I don't think I'm going to skip it. Um, I, I... Boy, what can one say about Do the Right Thing, which for my money is probably one of the top five American movies ever made? Yeah. Um, it's poster adorns my wall. I watch it regularly. Um, I did not watch it again for this because I've seen it a good 20, 30 times. I mean, I watch sure. it a lot. So um, it's about uh, uh, South Pizzeria in Brooklyn uh, and sort of a very hot summer there and sort of the um, racial turmoil that erupts when a character also played by Giancarlo Esposito plays bugging out, uh, gets really pissed off when he sees that the wall of fame at the pizzeria has no, uh, black folks on the wall. And that sort of starts this film into motion, which of course also features a very prescient, uh, uh, sequence involving radio Rahim, uh, played by the great, uh, Bill Nunn. And uh, late great, the late great Bill Nunn, who is in a lot of uh, Spike Lee's films. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, this is just this to me when it, when, it, when people I, I think people use the word urgent a lot when they're talking about films. And I always cringe a little when I hear it. But if there's ever a film that you watch and you feel an urgency to it, it's this film yeah. without a doubt. Like it just it drips with that sort of like wild sort of youthful energy Yep. And and this is and this is the film I think for most people that they saw and they're like holy shit this guy is not only the real deal but he is sort of going to be the voice for the next however many decades of American film and you could it, it, it never it never feels dated it never feels old. everything that they're talking about in this film has become even more and more relevant as the as the yeah. years have come on it's almost it's almost sort of predicting things to come in a lot of ways even though those things were always there it's just it's predicting how much more prevalent they're going to be and um spike lee is great in this i think his i mean mookie i think is his greatest role in in, in any of yeah. his films and um yeah, I adore this film. I mean, it's it's a it is it is one hundred percent without a doubt a masterpiece. Yeah, it will always be his best, right? I mean, it's he how do you can't top succeed. It? How you do can't you top succeed it? that. You just kind of have to live with it. Yeah, and it reminds me a lot of like, you know, yeah, it's just it's just a great work of art. It's like it's like to me, it's like the grapes of wrath, or there's something kind of biblical about it. There's you know, it's it's fascinating when you watch it. I watched it for this, you know, and I. I 
I was just blown away. I hadn't seen it in five or six years, I think. Yeah. And I was just blown away by how, and it saddened me. It was really a depressing experience because as wonderful as this movie is and as like so electric and the energy and the, you know, I mean, it's so beautifully fucking shot. Like every shot is, yeah. is, a, is a picture postcard. Like you, you'd want to hang on the wall. Like it's just incredible in terms of craft and, and, but then you sort of get to the heart of the matter and, do the right thing it sums up american life for the past 35 years and you're sort of you look at it and you just my jaw dropped in so many ways the power of you know radio rahim dying and and, uh mookie throwing the you know like the the sim the symbol the power of a symbol i think is just an extraordinary thing and it's hard to do these days because you know we don't i think in a weird way we, we look at everything as symbols and in another way like symbols are are kind of powerless these days but when mookie threw that trash can into the you you sort of saw it all there like it yeah. sort of sums up the african american experience in america uh you know in the last 100 years and and it's sort of uh it really it really hit me hard this time i really have to say it the whole thing it made me feel sad in the sense that we haven't gotten anywhere with this yeah we have not moved the needle one bit and that spike just <laughs> painted the picture he yeah. didn't even say anything this movie it doesn't have a point in a sense you know it's yeah. it's just it's a picture it's a portrait yeah. of a neighborhood uh and how delicate that balance is between all of this melting pot yeah you know it's and honestly it, it, it's like a, in a lot of ways it's sort of like a fictionalized frederick weissman Sort of like yeah. it's like taking like what he does with documentaries and sort of just that portrait of a neighborhood in a specific time, and yes. just adding this narrative and this context to it, and and really you know enriching it with that sort of lived in experience. Yeah, and everything is very. Um, I I was amazed by the lightness of tone that yeah. happens throughout the film to the point that there is, uh, you know, a fire burning yeah. underneath all of this. And it's only going to take just one match to light it all on fire. You just really don't feel that for a while. Everything is just very kind of light in tone in a sense that everybody's living together. But they're barely kind of, you know, tensions are high, but they also seem like, you know how tensions are high. Like, it's very easy to take it down, too. But nobody does. You know, there's no... There's no mediator or, or the ones that try are not listened to. And it's a it's a very, very. Um, yeah, I, I kind of lived with that one for quite a while. Honestly, it yeah. just it, it was for well, a week or two. I just was like, fuck, George Floyd, man. This yeah, is, I, I couldn't. It really kind of hit hard. So well, and it also um, to me, this to me is is maybe his best ensemble. Because apart from Spike Lee, you've got Danny Aiello, Ossie Davis, Ruby D, Esposito, Bill Nunn, John Turturro, Rosie Perez, who's so good in this, uh, yes. Martin Lawrence, and the great, late, great Robin Harris, yeah, uh, who plays right. Sweet Dick Willie. Um, and, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I mean, this is, the, yeah, I mean, this is just, it's, it's, a, per, it's a perfect movie. Aiello and is just wonderful. He, I mean, he I, really is. It, it, it is a travesty that he did not win supporting actor for the or even the whole nominated. Thing, it's, yeah, 
Yeah, the whole fucking thing is ridiculous, and it's insult to injury. Like, it's, I know it's a joke about driving Miss Daisy, but it's yeah. just insult when you watch Do the Right Thing. You're like, holy shit, how are the Oscars not canceled by now? Yeah. Like, how yeah. How are they still going with this history? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I mean, we could spend the whole episode talking yeah, about Do the really Right Thing, could. but I'm going to keep move it on. I'm gonna keep us on track and have you talk to us um, about a little film called Mo Better Blues. Ah, oh, yes. Mo Better Blues. All of these movies came out so quickly after one another. He yeah. was on a flurry. It's really wild that, like, you know, this, uh, Mo Better Blues, uh, Jungle Fever, they all, like, literally in, like, yeah. two years, they all came out. He really just was on an artistic um, uh, journey right at this point. And Mo Better Blues is a revelation. First time he worked with Denzel, um, and first time he worked with Wesley Snipes, um, it's a great musician's movie. Like I really was, was real, I, you know, and it's funny. I didn't like this movie growing up. I remember yeah. I was a, you know, a bit of a jazz musician. I played the trombone and, uh, in college I, I was in a quartet for a little while, but, um, this movie and this movie kind of captures a band in a really great way. I think, uh, Denzel plays a, a trumpet player he's leading this quartet uh, he's he's a phenomenal trumpet player like one of the best you know he's celeb- he you know celebrates and and studies mingus and all these great jazz players you know and he has this kind of uh arrogant purist behavior you know that he sort of thinks and knows best in terms of uh his and the movie is interesting too because i love the opening it's a very it's a it's a it's actually one of his cleanest screenplays i think of all, just in terms of again your messiness term, it really feels like a very um, streamlined and pointed narrative, unlike a lot of his movies. And I appreciated it for that because I think that the power of just telling the simple story kind of was different than a usual Spike Lee movie, and it it has a lot of power in it. Spike Lee plays uh, Denzel's like right hand man and the manager of the of the of the group and he's sort of like gambling uh, gambling their money away on baseball games and betting and shit and um wesley snipes plays the saxophone player who is really great in and of itself in and of himself but he's second banana to to denzel denzel is still the the best but Wesley is, you know, taking super long solos and he like really likes the ladies and he wants to pl- he wants to bring a singer into the group. Um, Denzel has a couple ladies that he's juggling. Uh, one is sort of this beautiful light skinned lady and this other one is uh, played by Joey Lee, who is Spike Lee's sister. And, you know, she's not as beautiful as the other girl, but she is she's in love with him and, and he's he's in love with her and they have a a great relationship if Denzel would get out of his own way. His character um, is, you know, again, he's not listening to others. It's a, it's a fascinating film about an artist who really hears only his own brain. There's a great sequence where Denzel is, like, practicing, and he he's, you know, practicing so much for, like, three hours in his in his apartment. And his girlfriend comes up and he shuns her away. You know, he's an obsessive in terms of music and getting it right um, to the point that he just does not see that there are forces around him that are about to take away what or, or are going to attempt to take away what 
you know, he's worked so hard for. And the movie spans like 60 years. I mean, it starts when he's a kid and there's this great opening sequence where his mother is, is, you know, on him to, you know, stay on that trumpet and you can't go out with your friends and, you know, uh, and his dad's like, let him go. And she's like, no, he's got to learn that, that shit, you know, and, and learn the greats. And, you know, that pays off into his life, but it also insulates him as a character. It's a, and you know, Denzel, it's like fucking Denzel. Like if you haven't seen this and you're a Denzel fan, like, honestly, this is one of the greats. I, 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 Spike Lee and Denzel Washington, I think, are one of the great collabs, yeah. I mean, of all time. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's ridiculous what those two have done together um, over over the course of their careers. So, I love Mo' Better Blues. What did you think of Mo' Better Blues? This is our first sort of disagreement, I guess, in terms okay. of... Uh, this okay. was one that I had not seen before. So, this yes. was a blind spot for me, and I, and I watched it. And I can't disagree with, honestly, anything you're saying, but there was something about this film that just left me cold. And mm. I mean, it's rooted. It feels very rooted in like almost sort of August Wilson in, in a way for me. And Denzel's great. I, I, I don't know that I bought Spike Lee in this role. I, to me, this might be his least authentic role. I, I remember seeing him in, I, I just, it, I, it felt weird to me seeing him, I just when you've got such a powerhouse like Denzel Washington, it's just I, I just it's there's a big disconnect there for me, and it did sure. and it didn't quite work. I also, you know, I I knew going into this film, I already knew that this film had gotten a lot of flack when it came out for its sort of portrayal of the Jewish characters, right. and I normally don't really care about that sort of not that I don't care. I mean, obviously, it's something that should be recognized and discussed. But it's not something that really, like, sours me on something until I see it and sort of understand how it's in context. But I did sort of find it distasteful. Like, I I did sort of watch this thinking, like, yeah, like, I see where the problems came from this. And like we said before, it's not like Spike Lee is without his problematic elements in his films. We've talked about it with his female characters. I think it happens with Jewish characters in multiple films. Yeah. And I don't think that's not me saying that he's anti-Semitic. I certainly don't think that he is. I just think he's not above falling into those stereotypes like every other filmmaker is. And right. it was and it was the 80s and early 90s and everybody was falling into those traps to some degree. And yeah. um so there was just something I don't know. I, it is hard to even put into words. I just wasn't able to sort of emotionally connect with this material. And yeah. I was appreciating it, like I was appreciating, you know, the way it was shot and that that gorgeous uh, uh, Branford Marsalis music. And um, I, I was I was super into elements like technical crafts elements of this, but the movie as a whole for me just didn't it didn't light my fire. I mean, the comeuppance in the end. I mean, I hate to call it that, but the catharsis it's fair. at the that's end. That's fair. You know, I kind of just think that that's. I, I hear you. I think if you're kind of not interested in the character or even jazz, like that, I, if anything, I could definitely see people who don't like jazz not liking this movie. It's very much about jazz, you know? And I appreciate um, jazz, but I don't. I would not call myself like a jazz enthusiast. I uh-huh. appreciate it, but I'm never just like, oh, I'm going to listen to some jazz. Right. Yeah. Right. But I, you know, I hear you, and I think that this movie is a little up its own ass, like in that regard, because I do think it's kind of commenting on the nature of jazz and even the history of jazz. I sort of feel like 
Denzel Washington's character represents sort of like new jazz where people were again like the sort of Miles Davis like where he just sort of again wasn't listening to anyone else a great jazz combo is all in tune because they're all listening yeah to one another and it allows you to kind of grow beyond you know just a solo or just the melody and I do think that the two different schools of jazz represented by Wesley and Denzel and then, you know, just their outcomes. Yeah. I think, you know, there's a lot of fucking poison pill in this movie just in terms of. And Wesley Snipes is great. Wesley Snipes is fantastic. And where they end up is just so fucking brutal. It's just really difficult to watch. It's a bit of a horror film in that last like 20 minutes. But uh, I I take your point. I definitely think it's it's a bold Again, movie to roll after after do the right thing. Oh yeah, and like I, I said, I appreciate huge. his wild swings. Like I love that he's following stuff up with this. Even if even though it doesn't work for me, like I appreciate the hell out of the fact that this is what he's coming back with after do the right thing. It's like holy hell, okay, yeah. dude, you are on it. And um, yeah, and he followed this film up with the film that I did not see. I see. It, I this, kind of. This is the one that I just... I thought it was. I, I, it's so funny. And I had I access and I had access to it. I could have watched it. And then like an hour ago, I just was like, oh shit, how did I space out and not see Jungle Fever? <laughs> so Do you remember it? Oh no, I've never seen it. You've never seen I've this? I've never Holy seen shit. Jungle Fever. Okay. It's like a okay. total blind spot. Like, and yeah. I just completely skipped my, I'd like, I don't know what it was about it that just skipped my brain, but I did not watch Jungle Fever. So I'd be curious to, to see what you thought of this. I think that this kind of is in, there's a certain, again, category of Spike movie, again, kind of playing with sexual politics. Uh-huh. This is a very, very sexual film. <laughs> uh, Spike Lee, if there is one thing I can say about him consistently, he is easily our most horny uh, director out there this dude like he loves a good sex scene <laughs> yeah. there is a good sex scene in al- almost every one of his he movies. does enjoy them yes <laughs> he loves seeing people fucking um and jungle fever there's actually not a lot of great uh sex scenes in this but there's one in particular that's just incredible um but basically wesley snipes plays um a guy he's got a wild name he's flipper <laughs> flipper is his name um, and he uh, is happily married, you know, and he lives in Harlem. He's an architect. Uh, he is the only uh, African-American in the company of, of architecture whose uh, the bosses are played by Tim Robbins. And gosh, I can't remember the other guy's name, but you'd know him if you've seen him. He's um, anyway, basically, he's the one black guy in this in this firm. And at the opening of the film, he gets a new secretary. He had asked for an African-American secretary since he was, you know, again, the only African-American in the, in the firm. And they give him um, uh, Anna, uh, uh, Annabella Sierra, who, who plays, I can't remember her name either. But regardless, they uh, he's angry about her. They don't like each other at first. And over time, they develop a friendship. And then it kind of late nights, you know, and next thing you know, uh, they're they're having an affair. Um, you then follow her home life where she is living with her father in, uh, uh, in Bed-Stuy, I believe, or no, uh, Bensonhurst, uh, with her brothers and they're just all assholes. You know, she, she comes home from work every night and she has to make dinner for them. She's dating this slub played by like John Turturro. He's a nice guy, but like, you're just like, man, you could do so much better. 
so you can see that Wesley Snipes is kind of like, you know, such an exciting, cool, like awesome, successful dude compared to everybody she knows at home. Um, and uh, it's funny because the movie then veers into a lot of different kind of aspects. It sets off a series of events that, again, it gets, ends up being kind of sort of tragic in a lot of ways. Um, you meet Samuel L. Jackson, who plays uh, Wesley Snipes' brother, and he's a crackhead. And um, you see that Annabella Sierra has sort of gotten rid of her boyfriend because she's kind of fallen for Wesley Snipes. And so it sort of develops into this just kind of movie that's not so much about race race relations, but just how a destructive an affair is, yeah. you know, and how it really just destroys everybody's life. But there is also, there are racial elements in, in it. Lynette McKee plays uh, Wesley Snipes' um, wife, and she's more upset, not that he fucked another woman but that it's a white woman she has light skin and so it makes her feel like self-conscious that he you know sort of ramped up his love of white women through her it's very complicated and there's a lot of kind of dialogue and a lot of discussion about just you know what these people are going through and it's a very it's a fascinating screenplay um Stevie Wonder's iconic song kind of opens the, the, the movie. And, and it's interesting with that title and that song. Um, it sort of speaks that Jungle Fever is sort of against nature, that it's not exactly like, you know, a natural thing. Uh, and that's not what the movie is saying. The movie is saying actually just the opposite. It's just that it's sort of, again, you're start, the movie starts from that premise that white and black can't really actually have relations you know what i mean like it's sort of that society sets us apart immediately before we've even been able to enter into things and they're never able to kind of consummate that affair and it's just a it's 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 actually a very very good movie i i really enjoyed it and i i i I do uh recommend it ossie davis plays wesley snipes father and he's just incredible yeah it's so sad and um yeah, you really start to get a sense that Spike Lee in this film especially is a very good director of actors. Yeah. He loves like he loves giving actors meaty scenes to work with. Yeah. And, you know, get into it and actually kind of have conversations and I don't know, I love that. Well, I, I, and I, I love, love directors who you who pull from the same stable of actors every film. Like I love yeah. people who have their team and they get their team together and you know, and Spike had one of the best. Like he had one of the best, yeah. you know, from from Ossie Davis and Giancarlo Esposito and John Turturro, and like he really did just have the best stable of actors, yeah. and still does totally. to a large degree. Yeah. Still does. Yeah, this and this it changed. You know, he collected actors yeah. as he went along. I thought that was great too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is a film. I can't believe I haven't seen it. I'm probably going to watch it tonight as soon as we finish recording this, so I can say that I completed. Well, not completed because there's something else I haven't seen too, but nothing this major. This is the major film that yeah. I did not see all because of my own stupidity but I look forward to seeing it but um, I'll tell you a film that I did watch again uh, for the mm-hmm. first time in quite a few years and that was Malcolm X ah uh, yes so ah uh, yes so let's the great Malcolm X the great Malcolm X so let's be clear this was originally going to be directed by Norman Jewison uh, yes. there was an outcry primarily from Spike Lee um, who did not think that a that Norman Jewison should be um, 
directing this film. Now, that has also been attributed to Spike Lee as, a, as some sort of anti-Semitic thing. It has nothing to do with that. He had every right in the world to think that Norman Jewison should not be directing this film. And sure. so, and Norman Jewison, I think, knew he shouldn't be directing this film because he bowed out and Spike Lee became the director. So, obviously, this film is about Malcolm X. Um, it was a labor of love in the fact that there were so many times in this film almost didn't happen. They kept running out of money. And it literally took Spike Lee uh, writing to basically every major black entertainer for support. And he got it from Bill Cosby, Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jordan, Prince. All sorts of people ended up giving him money and not for anything other than to help him tell Malcolm X's story. And what he did with their money and with the money from the studio is pretty goddamn incredible because this is a pretty, I would say, this is an achievement. Um, I mean, I you watch Spike Lee's early stuff and I certainly would not have thought that he had Malcolm X in him. But when you watch Malcolm X, it is so fully a Spike Lee movie and such a definitively Spike Lee take on such an iconic person. And you can't help but just marvel at it because it is, it's just all there on the screen. That Ernest Dickerson cinematography, that Terrence Blanchard score, like it is, it's just all there. And, you know, yeah. Denzel, Angela Bassett, Delroy Lindo, like it's just. Yeah, I mean, it's he's made a few films that I would say are as close to perfect as you can get. We've talked about one of them, which was Do the Right Thing. I would say this is another one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I absolutely, I absolutely agree, and I think that you know it's also kind of one of the last. It's of an era where big movies were being made, not about special effects and you know franchises, but. About historical figures, yeah. you know, I just think that's going to become less and less. I mean, I can only think of like Lincoln, you know, in the yeah. last ten years. But around this time, uh, we had JFK. You had, yeah. you had Nixon not long after that. Like, yeah, it was. And a Stone and Lee are are of that same school. Yeah, you know, and and it's interesting that there are periods throughout their career that they sort of crossed paths, and I think that they deeply respected one another. Uh, and I think that this movie kind of feels akin to JFK uh, yeah. and, and, and born on the 4th of July and, and sort of, you know, historical epics. And I think that it's, um, it, it, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a monumental achievement. All of these great things. It's uh, as Spike Lee said, it's the movie he was born to make. And I remember when this movie came out, um, I was, a, I was a little kid, but of course you grew up and, you know, I didn't have a great edu public education, but, um, Malcolm X was not the name you were taught. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. always, at, at, growing up for me, it was Martin Luther King. Yeah. And Malcolm X was a much more complex story, a much more, like, you know, controversial kind of thing to teach. I think a lot of people wanted to stay away from it. And so this was a movie that when I finally did see it as a, as a young man, um, I learned so much. It really was an eye-opening experience. I really think that Spike Lee, one of the things that makes him great, is that his movies can be dialogues. They can literally teach people. Uh, they are they are tools. <laughs> Do the right thing as a tool to open someone's eyes up to another person's experience. And I think Malcolm X does something very similar. It opens with that, like, again, like hotly controversial flag burning into X, you know, into the X, and that kicks off the fucking movie. 
and with Malcolm X kind of saying in voiceover, you know, how I've never liked white people, and you know, you're just like, holy shit, yeah. this is a fucking Warner Brothers movie, like four hours long. Like, you've got to be insane to open a movie like that with this. It's so much, and to end it the way it does with you know that Ossie Davis like you know, five minutes kind of exiting you like again and connecting Malcolm X's life to, to, to American life thereafter. And the movie just is, is incredible in its narrative, you know, all based on that great Malcolm X, Alex Haley autobiography. Yeah. Um, Also featuring a great performance from the late Christopher Plummer. It's a one, it's like a one scene deal and it is electric. Yeah. Bassett's like wild, you know, it's so good. And again, like his, his life personifies so many contradictions. And again, things that I think the African American man still grapples with today. Um, you know, I really think that there's a lot happening in this film, uh, about, about the black experience. I can't say this myself. I'm a white guy, but I, I think that this movie taught me a lot about the history of the very complex history of, of, again the african-american i think that 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 is such a a complex story to be told uh and i learned so much through this movie that i never learned in school and that's just a you know it's a testament and denzel fucking kills it of course like it's just wild to watch his transformation in this movie um it's it's mesmerizing to watch yeah and again this one didn't he didn't fucking win the oscar like What is wrong with these people? Why yeah. can they not recognize greatness when it's squarely in front of and them? Denzel, it went and Denzel went to fucking Pacino. Yeah, yeah. Ugh, yeah. gross. Yeah. Come on. Hoo-ah. So stupid. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, they. It, it took them so long to actually give Spike Lee the long overdue Oscar he deserved. Um, but yeah, this one, this one, yeah, this one is a masterpiece. Um, if folks have been too wary to check it out because of the runtime or anything like that, uh, it is not a boring moment in that movie. No, not a boring. moment. And again, uh, I think there are still tickets on sale for Malcolm X and 70 yeah. millimeter at the Arrow theater at the end. Of the I night. might be, so. I might be getting one of those myself. Billy Ray, that's, that's the night I want to see you here. Uh, well, I think, I think, think we sound, can make, that sounds right. I think we can make that happen. Um, yeah. But right now, I want you to tell me about his 1994 film, which for the longest time was my favorite Spike Lee movie, Crooklyn. Crooklyn. Yo, so much fun. Crooklyn is the best. Um, I showed um, a, a good friend of mine and her mom this movie. We all watched it together a few months ago. Um, and we were all just like, holy shit, Crooklyn is so fucking fantastic. It's just a great, like, growing up movie, you know, like, um, it's it, he wrote it with his brother and sister, I believe. Um, huh. It's about, again, another summer in, in Brooklyn. And uh, it's in the early 70s. There's just a lot of, like, lived-in experience in this movie. This is a movie that, like, you kind of make after five or six, right? Yeah. This is that kind of, like, okay, I feel comfortable enough. I've told my big tales. I've done my masterpiece. I really want to just kind of tell my story of me and my sister and my brother and, you know, uh, and and it's it's an it's an amazing um, it's an amazing little movie. Yeah. I have to say, I was really struck by how engrossed I was with it. I laughed, I cried. It's really just a lovely, lovely tale. Uh, and Delroy Lindo just crushes. Alfre Woodard dad. too. Alfre Woodard. They're both just so great. They're wonderful parents. They're just it's a it's 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 really refreshing to see 
good parenting. <laughs> you know, usually it's just like awful parents and how they fuck up their kids. And this movie is just the opposite. You're just like, oh, man, like it reminds me like, you know, my parents obviously made big mistakes, not big mistakes, but made mistakes. You know, I think as every parent does, but they were taking care of three kids. And I think three kids is fucking hard. It's a hard thing to do. Uh, I don't know. How many siblings do you have, Billy? Ryan? I have a sister, an older sister. Okay, so two is hard, honestly. I think one is fucking hard, but yeah. three is in- impossibly hard. Um, and I don't know. the the It's the little girl's story. It's kind of told from her point of view. Um, and uh, at a certain point, they go away to down south where they uh, – you know, uh, meet up with the aunt and uncle and they stay there for a while or she stays there. Right. It's just her. Yeah, yeah exactly. If I, if I remember correctly. And you know, there's kind of a disorienting effect about being down there and <laughs> he uses those Spike. anamorphic lenses and that squeezes yeah. it together. And Spike stretches it out and goes kind of film school here. And, and some people hate that. I personally, love I love it, it I too. Super, I love it. I, too. I think it's great. And again, it's not forever. It's like 10 minutes of the movie. It's just like get a grip on yourself. Um, but no, Crickland's just great. I mean, incredible soundtrack, yep. right? Lots of yep. fucking Motown. And there's something about no one really captures New York City, I think, like Spike Lee. Yeah. I mean, Scorsese has his own take, and it's a very valid take on. on but I also think it's a kind of a myopic take. It's very, you know, in one part of town. I have a feel. I feel like Spike Lee captures the big New York City, you know, like everything. Yeah, everybody kind of go goes into each other's neighborhoods. That's like a big part of it, you know. Who the fuck is that guy? Like he's you know not from around here. He's not from this block, and you can kind of tell. And I think that Crooklyn kind of captures New York so well. I don't know. Like do the right thing. You just kind of feel like you're living there with them, and uh, it's a joyful, joyful movie. I, I think it's it really kind of. Um, is one of his underrated yeah, films. Very underrated. This has been one that I've I've championed for a very long time. I love I I I tend to respond, I guess, the strongest to like the the most personal stories that he tells. And you can tell this uh-huh. one is such a a really personal lived in experience. It's also, you know, he's also working with a new cinematographer here, Arthur Jaffa, uh, who did, you know, who's a cinematographer, Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust. And yeah. um and and you know I I can't imagine Ernest Dickerson shooting this film frankly like it's got such its own unique style and energy to it visually like I, yeah. I think he needed to change it up to get that with this film um, right yeah I just adore this film like so much about it like the the Zelda Harris is so great as the little girl and Alfred Wood and Delroy Lindo are really just the best parents and there there are some like heartbreaking stuff in this film but it's also just it's such a it's such sort of a, a kind of a joyous sort of ode to childhood, and mm-hmm. I'm a sucker for those films anyway. So like this is the one that I'm just always like, have you seen Crooklyn? Or if they're if you're right, a spike, like, right. have you seen Crooklyn? Because if you ain't seen Crooklyn, you need to see Crooklyn. Yeah, and and Delroy Delroy plays like a, a jazz musician, yeah. right? He's I can't remember. He's some sort of musician. And it, he's kind of failing, or he has a band, I think. That's what it is. Yeah. He has a band. And I just love that, too, that, you know, it's like, boy, you've seen that before. It's like three kids in this asshole's, you know, trying to make a living as a musician. And it's just sad because, you, he, again, great dad, but his ambitions are wrong. And you can see all the pressure on Alfred Woodard's face. Like, you can see that she wants him to tr- do it. But on the other hand, it's like, no, we've got three fucking kids. And, you know, that's sort of what 
sends Troy down south. So there is a kind of dark sadness to this movie too. Um, and again, yes, at the end, if you remember, that's a kind of it's a tough ending. Yeah. So the movie is yeah. not necessarily just a blast. No. The movie is definitely saying something um, about growing up honestly too you know it's sort of i would say childhood doesn't last forever i would say ben zeitlin owes a lot to this film for beasts of the southern wild i think there's they share a lot of dna um but that takes us to um the next film in Mm -hmm. 1995 the next year uh where he said hey martin scorsese you want to come produce a movie for me and they're like sure let's make clockers and yeah. so, you know, Clockers was a film. I I did rewatch this film. I hadn't seen it honestly since probably it came out, and I have really conflicting feelings on this film. It's basically about it's basically about this housing project in Go Figure, Brooklyn, and there are these folks. They're called Clockers, and they're sort of drug dealers, and um, they sell for this 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 sort of main guy played by Delroy Lindo, and uh, Mackay Pfeiffer is one of them. And they sort of get entangled with these two detectives played by Harvey Keitel and John Tortoro and um, involving, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's these people trying to kill this guy. It's a thriller. It's, it's to me, it's Spike Lee's first thriller. It's a crime mm-hmm. thriller. And um, I don't know. I, you know, I keep, I don't want to just keep using this as a, as a blanket excuse about saying a movie leaves me cold, but I just, I, I just don't know that this was the right story for Spike Lee to be telling. Mm-hmm. This to me, it, it just felt off to me. It felt like this was the first time out of all of these films, even the ones that I didn't, even like you know I didn't love Mo Better Blues or School Days, but this is the first time where I watched one of his films and I thought, hmm, like I don't know that you have anything unique to bring to this material, huh? And huh? And a lot of that is, I think, partially because I, I'm someone who does not, for the most part, think Harvey Keitel is a great actor. Um, Weird. I think he's really great in some roles. And I think sometimes he just, it's either I think he's not right for the role, or I think that he's so right that it's almost too, like, it's just too easy. And that's kind of how I yeah. felt with this film. I felt like... This is just such an easy thing, and with Scorsese involved, I don't know. There's just a lot about this film that I, I appreciate the fact that he made a thriller and that he went a different route. Um, he's working with another DP on this one, which he with uh, Malik Hassan Saeed, who he's worked with before. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just don't feel like this film is like clicking on all the levels that his films usually do. Interesting, interesting. Because I th- I feel like this is another one of the underrated. Oh, okay. Myself. Yeah, like I think that this this movie kind of got short shrift when it came out. I don't think it's ever gathered a following in any way. And I think it's understandable. Those that do see it, I think agree with you more than they would with me. That it doesn't feel spike enough, maybe. Or he wasn't suited to the material. Personally, I do think he's pretty well suited to the material. In the sense that I think that this screenplay is great. Richard Price is an excellent screen screenwriter. And one of the best. And I think that, you know, pair a, a price screenplay with great actors and I, you're going to get something pretty electric. I think Spike in this movie does get in his, in his own way a lot of times. Uh, the, the score and the soundtrack is a little, like, overwrought. And, like, you're like, it's kind of weird to hear, you know, Seal 
sing a song in the middle of like this drug movie (laughs) you know what i mean like there's just some odd choices in terms of the soundtrack but i do think that mckay pfeiffer is incredible i think that he carries the movie this movie does something that spike has never done i will say that that's it's new territory for him kind of getting into the kind of gangster genre you know uh of drug dealing and it's dark you know it's not what he's ever done before um, that said, I think that he does something different with the material than anybody else that would get this film, like a Scorsese even. I think opening the film with all of those kind of stills of real life, um, you know, homicides were just so disturbing. Such a cr- harsh fucking way to kick off the yeah. film. That it's just set the tone for me that this is going to be <laughs> not an easy film. Yeah. And it was, it's not an easy film. I mean, it's really quite difficult. You're living in the world of drug dealing. Yeah. Uh, but real life drug dealing, not sort of like, you know, sexy drug dealing. You're seeing the crackhead. Oh, this is the wire before know. the wire. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's difficult. And Delroy Lindo, I think, gives one of his great performances with this film. Yeah. Uh, he's sort of the Fagin of this story. I mean, there's a lot of parallels with Oliver Twist to me with this one. I agree. Um, and then there's this kind of underlying mystery about, you know, whether Mackay Pfeiffer's brother played by Isaiah Washington, uh, t- is actually taking the blame for a murder that Mackay Pfeiffer actually did. Yeah. That's a mystery that kind of hangs over the entire movie. At the same time, Mackay Pfeiffer's character strike, I think is his name. He, he's having stomach problems. His stomach is just, you know, he's drinking this bullshit, you know, power drink all the time, and yeah. it's it's killing him, you know, by degree. So the movie's torturous, honestly. It's a, a torturous experience. I hear you about Harvey Keitel. It really should have not have been him. I think, you know, anybody could really have played those parts, and I think, but that said, again, I think that the twisting uh, and the subversion of the characters where the cops are actually just the most inhumane yeah, people. Yeah. The drug dealers actually have heart to some degree. They're just, you know, again, fucked up and in a fucked up environment and a fucked up, like, no dead-end situation. And I think it captures all that, yeah. you know. I've I found worse films that Spike has made in regards to this particular genre that didn't really connect with me more than this one. Yeah. This one still felt like a Spike Lee joint. I got, I got to say, yeah. I felt like by the end it was, it was disturbing enough that I was like, okay, Spike did make this, you know? Um, I think I would have I, rather, like I would have maybe just rather seen like, what if Danny Aiello had played that role instead of Harvey Keitel? Yeah. Like, I just, it's Agreed. just so, I just, like I said, I don't think Harvey Keitel's a bad actor. I just like, he's hit or miss for me. He's like 50, 50. Like sometimes I think he's incredible and a genius. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, no, this just ain't working for me. Totally. And you know, who's, who is great in it though, as another cop is David Keith. Yes. As the kind of, yes. As the, the black cop in the neighborhood that actually cares about these, these kids. Yeah. And is trying to protect them despite the fact that he sees half of them are fucking killing the other half. Yeah. So that character, I think, was an important character that you wouldn't see in a Sidney Lumet movie. You know, rest in peace, great filmmaker. But it's it's a Spike Lee kind of, I feel like it's an addition, yeah. you know, where he's like, let's have this cop actually be there. Because that's, in reality, there's that guy yeah. who, who lives in the neighborhood he's policing and then sees it all from the inside. So it's it's an interesting film, I think, you know. No, it 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 definitely is. It just didn't hit for me, but that's okay. 
But it's okay. But a movie it's all right. we don't have to agree on everything, Billy Ray. But a movie that did hit for me, uh, which surprise was surprising, was considering that it was very panned when it came out, was Girl Six. Oh, right, Girl I, Six. I okay. So Girl Six. Uh, it's written by one of our greatest playwrights, Susan Laurie Parks. Uh, directed by Spike Lee. Music by Prince. Like, just think about that for a second. Like, it's incredible. So basically, uh, Teresa Randall stars as Judy, who is this young black woman living in New York who really wants to be an actress. Uh, John Turturro plays her agent and gets her an audition with the man himself. Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> and Quentin Tarantino, of course, wants her to get undressed. And she gets really sort of uncomfortable by that and refuses, which sort of derails her entire career because people can't believe that she would refuse Quentin Tarantino, um, who, of course, plays himself. And um, this leads her to start working at a phone sex company. And very similar to... Um, She's got to have it in a lot of ways. This is sort of a film about a woman sort of discovering her sexual identity, what she's comfortable with sexually, and what she's comfortable with professionally. And to me, this film is another slap in the face of all those people who say that he can't write for women. Um, and I just think there is such a playful energy to this film. And mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's another sort of great stat cast. The amazing Jennifer Lewis is in this, who plays her boss in the film. And for folks who don't know Jennifer Lewis, she's sort of a social media sensation now. A lot of people know her as Will Smith's aunt on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And she's just an incredible actress. You've got all these like weird, almost little cameos from like Peter Berg and uh, Naomi Campbell and I don't know. I just I found I found this to be such a an, a weird, creative, like I don't give a fuck movie from Spike Lee. Like this is so yeah. just like I'm gonna do whatever I want, like it or hate it. This is the story I want to tell. And he assembled such a dream team to make it happen. And you know it didn't do well at the box office. It didn't do well with critics. People didn't know what to make of it. I almost feel like this is like his full frontal. It's like Soderbergh's full frontal. <laughs> yes. But I really dig this film. I certainly it's not the best film he ever made, but I think it's fun and underrated. I completely agree yeah. with you. <laughs> and I I would dream of a day that we do like Girl Six and Full Frontal as a double feature. How yes. fucking awesome would that be? <laughs> yeah. The weirdest double ever oh my put God. together. I mean look, he's got Prince doing the music. <laughs> Hey, Madonna is one of her finest roles is in Girl Six, if you ask me. I mean, she as I don't know that she does something in this movie with the manager of a strip joint that's just fucking amazing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You're totally right about this. I think that this movie is deeply underrated. I had to go all the way to Cinephile to get yep. it because it's nowhere to be found. I found it by um, less than admirable means. Interesting. Yes. Wow. Um, Quentin, I think, is actually really fun yeah. in this movie. Like, he is. I, I, I was just like, wait, what is happening here? Why am I just deeply enjoying watching Quentin yeah. be so fucking obnoxious? It's like that's the one thing he's gonna do really, really yeah. well. And he's so in on the joke. Like he's so of in course. on the joke, but it's also you're also like this might also be him. 
in yeah. a weird like you're like yeah. this might be him even though he's in on the joke. Well, the, and the whole movie kind of has a Godardian like play, yeah. like you said it's a it's a playful it's sort of playing with cinema. I mean, there's a lot of stepping outside of the film yeah. and kind of commenting on the film itself. And I think you know again it's that phase in an artist's career where they're kind of like you said fuck it let me just make I mean he followed clockers with yeah. this like what a weird turn yeah. you know but on the other hand it's it's a blast yeah. I mean it really is it's breezy it when it ended I was just like god that's that's one that I would want to show others uh in terms of just kind of being a comedy like a great 90s comedy um Teresa Randall I yeah. think is her name yeah. she's like kills it you know um, yeah, a great movie. I'm really glad you like this one. Yeah. I did not think you would because yeah. I just think it's it's um, I don't know. It's 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 an odd movie that could go either way. The way you kind of expect a Spike Lee movie is going to go. Yeah, uh, I could see a lot of people just being like, "Nope, this is not going to fucking work for me," you know, at yeah. all. And I kind of think that his movies start around this period to really start polarizing people. Yeah. You know what I mean? You really start to feel that it's. It's a love it or hate it at a certain point in his career where, you know, he's going to just people are going to walk away in droves yeah. and other people are going and the and the fans are going to just sit around and go, "Nope, that was great." Well, this <laughs> I love that. This would be a good time to inform you that we are not even close to halfway through and we've only got 25 minutes left, Ryan Marker. <laughs> so this is gone. We're going to have to speed go. This is gone exactly yeah. the way I anticipated. So um uh, why don't you tell us about, uh, why don't we, you know what, this is what we're going to do since they are similar, yeah. similar, have some similar themes going. Why don't we, why don't you combine us with get, combine with get on the bus and four little girls. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, this is good. I do feel like he's actually starting to make a lot of other things, smaller things that, you know, we can kind of yeah. maybe talk about a little more, more briefly. Uh, that said four little girls on HBO max right now, one of the great documentaries of all Agreed. time. Um, it is again, and it's it documents an incident uh, where there was a, a a in a sense a murder of four girls in a black church that was burned. And where and I'm where they, I'm from, Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ! Yeah. Do, do you you know the area where? Oh, that, I've 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 been there. I've very yeah. very familiar with it. Yeah. And the movie is just very kind of um, matter of fact. It's it's kind of you know elegiac in that way. It does not kind of um there's not a lot of style to this movie no. at all if anything it feels like a ken burns movie it's very much just let's talk to the people who were there let's kind of uh honor the people who have passed and talk to their you know it's a, an extremely respectful documentary and i think it was nominated for an oscar at least i, I, can't I believe quite i believe that's true i did it did it wow like how did the, how did it not win if it didn't win like Honest to God, How, it's sort of bizarre. I mean, that would know. be insane if it did. Spike's just underrated in that. I mean, I in just an overall yeah. way, like it's bizarre. It was just People nominated. Just don't really. Th- it's so strange. But yeah, the 16th um, Street Baptist Church is is iconic in Birmingham, and you know yeah. the the little girls, Addie Mae Collins, uh, Carol Denise McNair, Cynthia Wesley, and yeah. Carol Rosamond Robertson are the four little girls who were killed in that. But yeah, that film is played a lot in Birmingham, and. Uh, uh, Birmingham is a yeah. big Spike Lee, big fan of Spike Lee, a large part because of that film. Yeah, um, um, and and like like Malcolm X again for me, I 
this was this was a learning mo- moment. This was a learning film yeah. where I I really did not know of this of this particular incident. Of course, like uh, I I don't think a lot of people do still to this day. And I think that you know th- I'm glad it's on HBO. I'm glad it's easy to be seen. I'm glad we're talking about it because it's a movie that everybody really should yeah. see. It's one of the great documentaries of, of all. Time, and this was his and this was his first documentary. And this was uh, evidently he was in the mood because Get on the Bus almost plays like a documentary in a lot of ways. Like it's, it's yes. almost a hybrid and it's about, yeah. you know, these, this, these group of very different people on a bus going to the million man March, which um, is right. very time specific. Like I remember the million man March very well. And, um, and, but it, it has that documentary sort of a feel running through it too. And he made these back to back, which is really interesting. And cause you can tell he was sort of discovering his love for documentary storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. And I think get on the bus, also speaks to another passion that he started to pick up around this time, which to me it feels definitely like a documentary, but also like a play. I mean, it all takes place on this bus. It's like a one-setting thing. Uh, it examines these characters as opposed to like major plot devices happening throughout. You know, it's essentially about their their communing over the Million Man March, what it means, what they're doing. It's sort of about you know, again, African American men living in 1996. And what that means specifically at that time. Uh, and yet at the same time, again, it still speaks to things that, that we deal with today. And um, I, I don't know. This movie really kind of uh, blew, blew, my, blew me away in a, in a big way. I, I think it's sort of like getting down to spike getting down to like the roots of filmmaking where I think it's like put, you know, interesting people on a on a bus together. They're headed towards a specific thing that they do not understand in a weird way. Everybody has very different feelings about the Million Man March. And I really found the the asp- the introduction of Richard Belzer's character um, such an interesting kind of twist on the film. And, yeah. you know, they debate the Million Man March and they debate it with, uh, will- with their women before they leave. You know, yeah. with not their women, but the women in their lives yeah. uh, before they leave. Um and, and I think that that's an interesting thing that, you know, Spike wanted to examine this phenomenon and not necessarily say this is a great thing. You know, this is exactly like this is, uh, you know, like 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 King on, on the Washington Memorial. You know, it's not that I think that everybody is grappling with the Million Man March and what exactly it means. And I, I found that mesmerizing mostly for the sense that if somebody's seeing this film for the first time. And doesn't know what the Million Man March is, they're going to look that up and they're going to kind of try to explore what the hell that is. And it's an important kind of event in that regard, I think, you know, that you did have a million people go to, you know, under Louis Farrakhan's. Yeah, (laughs) it's 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 a hell of an achievement. Yeah. And Ossie Davis's character is so interesting. He's the highlight Uh, to me of the film. Yeah, no, he's absolutely amazing. But um you know, there's a lot of great scenes in this movie. There's a lot of great. I really like uh, what's his name, Roger Gwen Gwenvere yeah. Smith. Yeah. Uh, he, this is around when they start working together, and he's he becomes one of Spike's incredible, you know, stable of actors. Yeah. I mean, he's he's just one of the best, I think. Yeah. Uh, but they're all there. Isaiah Washington's there. Um, yeah. There's a. There, it's 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 a really fun movie, I, I think, and I I do recommend it. I think we're skipping one though, Billy Ray. Um, I, think I we skipped one. I don't think we have a big one. I don't think we have skipped one. Okay, what's next? Uh, well, what's well, next. next up is we're gonna do this one. 
madcap style. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but we're he made I consider this to be to me his most inventive streak of films. And so it's okay. five films in five years. And those films are He Got Game, Summer yeah. of Sam, Bamboozled, The Original Kings of Comedy, and 25th Hour. Wow. He made those <laughs> films back to back to back to back to back. What was he on? And I, I won't, I, I'll just, I'll just say this. I, you know, I think this was the period of time when he was really diving into this whole idea of experimentation with his filmmaking and really tackling things that just interested him. Like, like he's a huge basketball fan. So of course he was going to make a basketball movie. He was, he, he had such vivid memories of New York city, uh, with summer of, with, with, uh, son of Sam. And so summer of Sam fit naturally into that. Um, bamboozled which is by god 25th hour which you know really to me is the first film to tackle 9-11 in a substantive way and then you've got original kings of comedy which sort of launched this whole sort of wave of of comedy and these comedians into like the public eye in a lot of ways like he did so much in this five-year span like it's 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 just insane to think about yeah and all different things all of them wildly yeah. different um, and all of them like pretty daring still pretty great uh, all of them just yeah very very interesting that's I've never kind of clumped those movies together I watched them all in different time periods like you know out of order yeah um, but you're right that is a fucking hell of a run like when you really think of it I mean he got game to me is profound like I, I think agree agreed like I, I agreed. can't you know speak I will sing the praises of He Got Game for for a very long time. It it moved me like no yeah. none of these other movies. It's the movie of his that I've probably watched more than any other. Interesting. It, it, I had I had not seen it in It is. Years. It's one that I the first time I saw it in theaters, I was just so floored by it and it 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 just it had such an effect on me that it's just become one of my you know fav- just one of my favorites. And I'll be honest, I had a similar reaction to Summer of Sam like I was all I, from the moment I saw that film in theaters. I was just the way he depicts New York City at that time, and just the people and the the atmosphere. Like nobody yeah. to me has captured the atmosphere of like frenzy and fear the way mm-hmm. that he does in this film. Like even something like Zodiac, which I adore, I think this film does it better. Yeah. And, and oh, absolutely! It, it, this film just does it better. And you know, I bamboozled is a film for me that when I first saw it, it did not work for me at all. I rewatched it again. It certainly worked better for me, but I'm certainly yeah. not as high on it as a lot of people are who are, you know, who are trying to like bring it back as sort of like this unheralded masterpiece. I don't think of it that way, but I I I appreciate a lot about it. I for me, I think. You know there are problems with Damon Wayans' performance in that film, but sure. but that's my issue with that. I think Twenty Fifth Hour is his is another masterpiece. I, it's stunning. I think it is it is one that I I get new I get new things from it every time I watch it, and just the performances he gets from everybody in that film. Another perfect example of just how amazing he is with performers, and yeah. um you know and again like all of these films I I I think. Every single one of these films 
is with a different cinematographer. Wow. Which is also... That makes sense, yeah. Which is also just... Well, that's not true. So it looks like Summer of Sam and Bamboozled... Uh, were the same. Were, were the same. And Holy he, shit. And he goes back to one of his previous cinematographers where he got game, but he de- it's Rodrigo Prieto who does 25th Hour. And, yeah. um And then, yeah, an original Kings of Comedy, I don't want to shortchange that one because, like I said, like it, it just, you know... You know, Steve Harvey, D.L. Hughley, Cedric the Entertainer, Bernie Mac. Like, people knew who they were in 2000, but this is the film that really introduced them and pushed them forward and gave them all TV shows and yeah. and really just made them into sort of iconic, you know, iconic presences in entertainment. It's got to be one of his biggest movies, like, in terms of box office, because it was just fucking stupid like huge when it came out for a documentary like making you know it made like 40 million dollars for you know for a documentary like that's a lot of money it was around a long time too i remember played in theaters for a long time it was it was such a huge thing yeah no it's that's so interesting and and you know um 25th hour and 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 he got game i feel like the two movies that the driving force of those two films, obviously, I think, is the relationship between a father and a son as they are about to go into a phase of their life that is terrifying and maybe alienating and scary. And um, those movies, again, are hard sells, if you ask me. Like, if you take a, a script like The 25th Hour to a studio... That's I think in these days that's not going to sell, right? That's not you're just not going to get that made unless it's a very small movie that you can get made. This is a very kind of small movie but made with big actors, made in in New York City like in the wake of 9/11. The movie kind of deals with 9/11 and there's a lot of allusions to 9/11, but it's not about 9/11 per se. I think it sort of the story is an allegory for 9-11 in a sense but more so like you know it's about changes and changes and and, and sort of you know uh living up to your responsibility yeah um you know and and atoning for your sins and if there is you know and and uh, if there's a metaphor there yes that could be it but i just personally on a personal level this like from a cinematic level i just really like how Spike drops you in a time period and he captures the mood of New York City in the wake of 9-11. Yeah. Do you know what I mean, yeah. Billy Ray? Like, that's yeah. sort of, that's not something that most filmmakers do. No. And that's something that, like, he definitely has an enjoyment of. Summer, you know, Summer of Sam is so fit, so squarely in New York City 1977 that it's practically too specific. Yeah. You're like, dude, like, you could kind of, you know, give us a little bit more of a bird's eye view here. You're so on the streets yeah. of 1977 that you can kind of fucking smell the air. Yeah. You know, you can kind of smell the the bad cologne and the fucking like cigarette smoke everywhere. I remember, I remember it being such a big deal, such a big deal, because I believe this was the first post 9/11 film set in New York that did not have the twin towers. Because you remember there were some films that were yes. like, and he he and that was it was such a big deal and it was so like wow okay and it just lent yeah. this sort of like gravity to the film, um, you know obviously that was helped by Edward fucking Norton Philip Seymour Hoffman like yeah. obviously helped by those incredible people Barry Pepper yeah yeah um, and so 
And Brian Cox, God, I mean, Brian that's, Cox, you know, yeah, he, Brian Cox. That scene in the bar right before Norton's going to go, yeah, and he wants to, he wants to drive him, and uh, Norton doesn't want him to drive him, and it's just like, man, this is hard. It's a hard yeah. movie, hard scene. Well, continuing with what I would call his experimental phase, um, mm-hmm. I we just covered five of his iconic films in like three minutes. So, <laughs> my God, um, we're doing it. So we're doing this. He follows that up with a TV documentary about Jim Brown called Jim Brown All American, which <laughs> let me be clear, I did see. It's a fine documentary. It's nothing to write home about. It's fine. Don't need yeah. to talk a lot about that. Um, and uh, he followed that up with She Hate Me, which is the other film I was not able to see. And so I, I don't have a lot to discuss about that. But the film that I did see, which it took me forever to find, was a film that um, he made it as a pilot for Showtime. It was going to yeah. be a series. Uh, and Showtime did not pick it up, but they retooled it. They turned it into a film, and it's called Sucker Free City. And yeah. even though it came out afterwards, I believe it's the first time he worked with Anthony Mackie. And it's about yeah. these three uh, men played by Anthony Mackie, Ken Lung, and uh, Ben Crawley, and about how they're all three sort of getting into these various lives of crime. And it's it's another one of those films where I, I it, the narrative is very loose it's just following these characters around as they sort of come into their own. But I really responded to Sucker Free City. I was like, I could have seen this being a theatrical release of his in some ways. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a really a cool, tight little film. Um, again, I didn't see She Hate Me, but and Jim Brown, I, you know, Jim Brown is just a pretty run-of-the-mill documentary. <laughs> you feel like the Jim Brown documentary was like the favor that he said he'd do for him being in 25th hour. Yeah, <laughs> you know exactly. I mean? Exactly. Like, Jim's like, I'll do it, but you've got to make this doc. Jim Brown, all American is the title I thought of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, okay. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, but yeah, it's not that great. Uh, but it's, I, I agree with you. I think sucker free city is really, really good. Um, it's bizarre because yeah. it's like, I don't know. You could see it being a great series and it's an odd little pilot, you know, in and of itself, just sim- simply because, the quality's so good. Like everything's, you're just like, how did this fucking not go forward? Like what, what happened here? It's also a really neat juxtaposition uh, with "She Hate Me" to illustrate how great Anthony Mackie actually really is as an actor. Yeah, because "She Hate Me," his performance in "She Hate Me" is completely like the polar opposite, totally different of this movie. And uh, "She Hate Me," I I guarantee, I guarantee, fucking t Billy Ray, you are gonna love "She Hate Me." Uh, it is messy as fuck. Like, it is one of his wackiest movies I think he's ever made. It's one of those where you feel like he's writing it as they go. Yeah. And um, just, it's it's kind of indescribable. Like, there are scenes where Anthony Mackie, you know, the premise of this is Anthony Mackie, like, loses his job in the very beginning. And one of his ex-girlfriends who uh, is now in a lesbian relationship, they want to have a baby and they want him to be the surrogate father uh, and impregnate one of them. Well, that causes friction between those two, but it also kind of kicks off this business proposition she has that she's going to bring in various lesbian groups to <laughs> who want a baby to be intimidated by Anthony Mackie. Oh my God. And there are quite literally scenes where Anthony Mackie's sperm is going, has his face on... <laughs> 
the sperms. Like, look who's talking style. <laughs> you know what oh I mean? And they're talking. And it's just like, Spike, what are you doing, my man? Like, this is insane. And it's two hours and 20 minutes long. Uh, Woody Harrelson is just over the top, you know, as his boss. Yeah. Um, uh, Monica Bellucci is in it in an incredibly strange role. Like, it's so fucking lunatic. Uh, and yet, like, again, Kerry Washington is really great. Like, Anthony Mackie is wonderful. Like, he is acting the shit out of this movie. And you're just like, why? Why? Yep. <laughs> and people hated it. They freaked out. They were like, this is fucking insulting. It's like a terrible movie. Like, they just could not stand it. In retrospect, I see where they're coming from, but it's entertaining as fuck. If you're a Spike yeah. fan, like, you're going to go, she hate me's pretty, like, wild. But, like, it's got a, it's got a girl six energy where you're kind okay. of like, he's just kind of throwing it up there and seeing who likes it. Yeah. You know, it's a jump ball and... But it's bizarre. Man. I will. Like, I will check. Gonna... I will check that one out. Um, yeah, it, it's wild. And for all it's of the wild. all the City of God fans out there, uh, Cesar Charlone, who shot City of God, shot Sucker Free City. He's the cinematographer on that, and uh, yeah. really cool little movie. Um, okay, so that's going to take us to Spike Studio movie Inside Man. Okay. It's Inside Man. Um, Inside Man. Inside Man. Jodie Foster, Denzel Washington. Um, what can I say about Inside Man except I didn't like it when it first came out and I don't like it now that's so fucking weird because I don't like it yeah, either I don't I like it to be like okay here we go I guess I gotta talk about this I, now I don't back like I like it. I don't think it works I don't think the movie works I think it is yeah. I think it is so like run of the mill and like none of the surprises are really surprises and you know, everybody feels. I mean, almost everybody feels like they're phoning it in. Like this, to me, this is one of his, the, one of his least successful in terms of performances because I feel like everybody's yeah. just phoning it in. Denzel is not doing anything. No, he's, no, he's really boring. The heist is kind of like not that yeah. complex. I kind of yeah. see every part of it. Like, there's no. It's not a good heist movie. Like, no, in my opinion, it's, if anything, it's kind of a good studio yeah. movie at best it's it's know? bland but, but that's yeah that's enough about inside man we both didn't like moving it moving on moving on so let's move on to and i'm <laughs> going to combine these two films because i think they are both pretty monumental pieces of cinema and if this might sound weird but they are the only films that i watched twice in preparation for this and okay. they are documentaries they are a pair and i think they are essential viewing and they are when the levees broke and if God is willing and the creek don't rise. Yeah. And I think they wow. are a couple of the most powerful documentaries I've ever seen. And and it's that same sort of four little girls thing that he brings to some of his documentaries where it is very sort of almost matter of fact in the way it's telling it. And it's this blend of different documentary styles. But you can tell that he has such a righteous anger about what happened with Hurricane Katrina. And for folks who don't know, that is what the film is about. When when the levees broke, it's about Hurricane Katrina and um, sort of all of the horrible things that went wrong uh, there. And um, If God is Willing and the Creek Don't Rise uh, is uh, a follow-up to that, which sort of you know follows it the years later and seeing how it's recovered and everything that's happened since to that region. It touches on the BP oil spill and um boy like these are just powerhouse pieces of filmmaking yeah yeah they are 
like yeah they like four little girls but in the complete opposite way they're they're like necessary viewing yeah i think yeah like you know i know people who don't really even care about spike lee but they've watched this they've watched at least when the levees broke um yeah you're absolutely right i think it's such a like amazing dissection of the first one of the first big you know uh climate change disasters in 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 our in our world yeah and how we were inept dealing with them how we are we did not take care of people afterwards how you know we the poorest amongst us always are the ones who suffer and are the ones that are the least cared for uh when it comes to america and you know having now lived in the wake of of our past year it's very clear that the parallels are are again prescient is not even the word it's just oh there it is we we're doing this we're doing this again you know this is all happening again and we're contextualizing this wrong and we are looking back on it incorrectly um there's so much to talk about when it comes to these movies that you could do a whole podcast uh, actually a you know like a an entirely like hours upon hours on every little minute detail of when the levees broke and then you know if god if god is willing is a really important documentary in and of itself yeah. because i think it's important for us to not only look at these disasters and the causes and the effects but in this particular case it's 5 years later have we done what have we yeah. done yeah. to prevent this from happening again what have we learned from any of that and where are the people that were affected and you you follow them and they're they've been scattered yeah. across yeah. the United States and that is just and they don't want to go they want to go home to New Orleans but they also can't you know they realize that education was better everywhere else than from where they were from yeah uh you know jobs were better everywhere else than than New Orleans and and so that in and of itself is a tragedy that they never had a way to go back home after it was all over. The movie is, these movies are profound and, and maybe, you know, uh, maybe amongst his best. Uh, Agreed. Um, I'm going to skip around a little bit right now. uh, Just, just for the sake of combining things that make sense. Um, I don't think these require much elaboration, but he directed a couple of documentaries about Michael Jackson. Uh, He did the bad 25 doc and he did Michael Jackson's journey from Motown to off the wall. They are both super fun super engaging documentaries about a very divisive figure. Um, I don't know that Spike sees him as divisive as a lot of people do, which is maybe sort of a problem with those films. Um, But perfectly good. I don't have much more to say about those than that. No, um, you know, he recognizes a cultural icon yeah. and that's what, the, that's what those exactly. are about. So we're going to combine another three films here uh, okay. because um, just because I can and I want to. And one of them, the first one is 2008's Miracle at St. Anna, 2012's mm. Red Hook Summer and 2013's mm. Old Boy, because I think they are so bizarrely unconnected in any way. Like, you've got Miracle at St. Anna, which is a pseudo-studio film with a Spike Lee lens and sort of a precursor to what The Five Bloods, I think, really perfects. And then you've got Red Hook Summer, which is a pseudo-sequel to Do the Right Thing because Mookie is back. 
And that's one of his films that people loathe that I sort of adore. And then we've got Bam Old Boy, which I think the less said about Old Boy, the better. But um, so out of those three, I don't really care for Miracle at St. Anna. That's another film of his that to me doesn't really work. I think it's well intentioned, and I think there it, visually it's an interesting film. Yeah. Red Hook Summer, I really dig. I think it is so dark. And so it, it combines two of the things I love the most about Spike Lee. Like that, I sort of like, through a, the lens of a child, where you're following the sort of childhood experience growing up. But then it also gets dark as fuck. And I think it is the best use for me of that dolly that he employs in so many of his films when he uses it in The Five Bloods in that sequence where the preacher is being called out, I am just like wide-eyed, gripping the seat, like riveted. It is such a yeah. powerful, powerful scene. And um, yeah, I just, I, I, I'm, I'm a big Red Hook Summer fan. I know I'm in the minority there, but I love that film. Well, I'm with you in that minority because I, I agree. I think it's just really... Um, Clark Peters, yeah, man. It, Clark Peters. Woof. It's just a lot. It's a lot to take that film. I mean, it's it's really interesting. I know uh, you 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 grew up in a church, didn't you, Billy Ray? I did. Like there's there's a a real fall from grace in terms of this movie that is harsh because you really get a sense of the joy of a church in that first half of the movie. Yeah. Um, it's bifurcated by this kind of revelation that I know a lot of people just were turned off by, but for me I didn't I don't quite understand that because I don't know again have you seen a Spike Lee movie before <laughs> like it just doesn't make any sense right. um and yeah there's a real kind of visceral energy to the movie there's a great look and feel to the movie the main kid flick is really good yep. um and again a modern story not this isn't a, a tale told about another time um and yeah, Clark Peters is just like phenomenal. Just really embodies an it's an incredible tr transformation and, and performance. And the end of this film is just profoundly disturbing yeah. for me. I, I, I had a hard time with walking away from this one. Uh, it kind of haunted me for a while, and I just didn't expect it. I had not seen this one before. I remember you spoke of it uh, lovingly yes. in a draft one time, and I was very intrigued. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, it's a tough movie, but again, a lot of fun in a, in, in a whole different way. And it's the first time uh, Spike Lee was had appeared in one of his films since Summer of Sam. That was the last, yeah, wow. and so it had been a while. And it's also um, uh, Tracy Camilla Johns, who played Nola Darling. She's back in this as, as Mother Darling. Right. Uh, and then, of course, Spike Lee, yeah, appears as Mookie in this very briefly, wearing his Saul's Pizzeria shirt. Yeah, I thought all that stuff was unnecessary in a weird way. I think it actually kind of like was a bit of a weird. I agree. I agree. I don't think it was necessary either. Part of me when I saw it was like, oh, that's cool. But then you're like, but it didn't need it. It didn't need it. No, especially for the power of the tale. You know, yeah. it's sort of like you're taken away. But th none of that really bothered me because, you know, it's about the grand pop and, and, and this kid. And, yeah. And I, that's another thing is like. I loved my grandfather, you yeah. know, and to, to have a fall from grace like that would really be a devastating experience. Yeah. So, um, I, that said, I completely agree. Miracle at San Diego does not work. I yeah. think it's a terrible movie. I think it's one of his worst. Yeah. But I gotta say, oh no, I like me some old. No, <laughs> no. 
Sorry, Billy Ray. I, I, you know my love for fucking like remakes. This you just, know that. this just falls in that area to me of like it was so unnecessary, and I don't think he brought uh, anything new to it at all. No, wrong. I don't think he brought I mean, anything unnecessary, new to it. Unnecessary is not a word I like to use because that's just like no movie is necessary, Billy Ray. Well, no, but there Let's are some that are less necessary than others. You're talking to the man who spoke praises about Gus Van Sant's Psycho for a long time. On but the I also, but it's also like, I think Josh <laughs> Brolin is dull in this. I don't think Elizabeth Olsen works. I think Charlotte Copley no. is embarrassingly bad. I don't know. Like, to me, they don't bother. It's, it's a remake. It's, it, it is an unnecessary remake. They don't bother me. I, again, I find the whole reason that Spike did it was for the sex scene. It was not for the violence, and I think people do not get Oh, that. no, let's be clear. He did this for the paycheck. Maybe. He, he did you. this so he could make the next two films that we're going to talk about. I just want to say one last thing. I think this movie has more originality in its remake flavor than all of Inside Man. That's how I. That's how much I... How much I don't care for Inside Man. Well, I'll I'll say this. I think he failed with this remake, but I think he succeeded with his very next film, which was also a remake, The Sweet Blood of Jesus, which is a remake of Ganja and Hess. But I'm gonna combine we're gonna combine these five films together. Brace yourself, Ryan. Because we're getting into we're getting into it. So it's 2014, The Sweet Blood of Jesus, 2015's yeah. Chirac, 2018's Black Klansman, and 2020's The Five Bloods. Wow. It's the end. It is... The final run. Uh, so, yeah. So I love The Sweet Blood of Jesus. I tend to be in the minority on that. I've seen its praises many times before. I think it is such an unusual sort of a remake. Because if you've seen Gaj and Hess, they're very different, but they are also so intertwined and so on the same same wavelength. And I think Chirac is his most bonkers, balls-to-the-wall movie I've seen. And it is a um, it is sort of a a remake or not a remake, but it's a it's his adaptation of Lysistrata, uh, Aristophanes, and. Chirac, when I first saw it in theaters, I didn't know what to do with it or what to un- how to unpack it or what to make of it. Rewatching it again, I just appreciated it for how insane it was and how colorful and fun it was. Um, I th- Black Klansman, to me, is a good film. I always found it was a little overrated. I-, I didn't love it as much as everybody else did. I think it's a good film. I think it's got a lot of good things about it. I, yeah. I, I, but I, I, it wasn't the film that like knocked my socks off. Defy Bloods, I think, is insanely great, and I adore that film, which we discussed on a Screen Drafts episode, the best of twenty twenty draft. I love yeah. that film. Um, so yeah, so we just went. I just went through those four films very, very quickly. So let's elaborate on those. I've, I've, we've look. We're going to be a little over the ninety minute mark, and that's okay. We're doing the best we can, Whatever. people. We're, we're doing. We're doing it. the best we can. We're close. We're close. But uh, so yeah. yeah. What, what are your thoughts on the, this succession of four films? I was. I. I have to say, I was. I remember when you brought up the Five Bloods, and I just kind of that was such a long episode. I didn't want to kind of follow up. I knew that it was already contentious, uh, but I was. 
sort of amused because I feel the same way. I feel like The Five Bloods is such a bizarre film. I mean, it's so wild and weird. And I do put pair it up in a weird way with Black Klansman. I think that there's a new type of filmmaking he's employing yeah. with these past two movies. And I can't necessarily pinpoint exactly what it is yet. I think they are very different movies. But I also think that there's a tone to, the, to both of them that's a little on the flat side. But within that flatness, there's so much kind of wild, weird energy that in a strange I love when filmmakers kind of change their crew, you know what I mean, yeah. and take on a whole new group and employ their new their style upon a whole new group of collaborators. And it feels that way. These two these two movies. I mean, Delroy Lindo, grant, granted, is incredible. Like what he does in this movie. And this is the first movie that I think. I mean, it is that um, it's an interesting film because I think it it grapples with Donald Trump yeah. and the Trump presidency. Uh, and I don't think we've seen too much of that in movies, period. And this movie doesn't even shy away from it. Like like Delroy Lindo's character is is a disturbed yeah. man. And it kind of is manifest in the fact that he's a Trump supporter. It feels unhinged out of the gate. And gets only in more insane as the movie goes through. I mean, it has a wild apocalypse now energy where you're like, what the fuck is happening right now? There's a certain point in this movie where it feels like this is Space Cowboys, right? For a while, where it's like four old guys yep. going to go and do their thing again. And then there's a point where it, there, that tone is thrown out the window and all of a sudden, like... It feels like you're in a fucking fever dream nightmare. And I don't know. I found that just interesting. Like, I can't say good or bad. I loved it. I think it's just weird. And you don't see things like that too much anymore. And you really don't see that ever before in a Spike Lee movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, this is a violent fucking film. Like, insanely violent. It's strange how violent it is. It was just shocking to me. Um, Black Klansman, I, I agree with you. I think it's a really fun movie. I love it a lot. I've seen it many times. It's a movie just to watch with yeah. friends, I think. I, I, it, it's just fun. <laughs> you know, it's hilarious and just kind of interesting, but nothing, not a, not a major spike movie. Yeah. I'm, I'm really fascinated by your love of the sweet blood of Jesus. I think that movie is just a, a mystery to me. I don't quite get that movie. I, I, I've watched it twice now. There are things that I love about it. There are things that I just will never understand. It's a it's a it's, visual mood. It's, crazy. it's a visual mood piece to me. Like it is very dreamlike in the way it sort of weaves in. It's very it's unlike any film of his. I think I think it is so unique yeah. in his filmography and so different. And I think it's just him taking that love he has of Ganja and Hess and Spike Leifying it, but doing it in a way that's very unexpected. Like it's not the way you yeah. expect Spike Lee to remake Ganja. Totally. No, you're absolutely right. And it's in that regard, I think that it succeeds. Yeah. Um, I just ha I, I haven't connected to it yeah. yet. Maybe I need to like, you know, take some magic mushrooms or something. I feel like that would be the way to go. I feel like it's his trippiest yeah. film. Easily, Agreed. You know, um, and Chirac, look, Chirac, I think is is one of the quiet masterpieces for me. I think that the movie is very profound. I think that, you know, it's a reimagining in a modern context that is hilarious and bittersweet 
And at the same time, yeah, like it's powerful. It's a powerful statement. And uh, the fever pitch that it hits about three quarters in is just it's magic. It's yeah. like, oh, this is this is Spike at his very yeah. best. And you know who kind of fucking steals this movie like low key is John Cusack. Yeah. I yeah. mean, he is killing it in this. When movie, John Cusack just, gives a shit, you can tell. There's like a 10 minute fucking sequence monologue yeah. where he just goes and it's it's John Cusack yeah. at his most John. But, Cusack. you know, I mean, it's but also when does Wesley Snipes not almost steal anything like Wesley Snipes is on fire here. Uh, Tiana Paris, who's just incredible here. She plays she's the she's uh, Alyssa Strada and she's this yeah. is like a good calling card for her is she's fantastic. And it's just yeah, and and Nick Cannon is being very Nick Cannon. He is being very Nick Cannon. <laughs> the most Nick Cannon you've ever seen him. Um, it's disgusting, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting seeing Spike Lee tackle Chicago because he's so yeah. You, you're so used to him just sticking with New York to a large degree, and see, and I know he got he did get some flack for this film and some of the ways he depicted Chicago and some of the things with this, but um, who it wouldn't be Spike Lee movie without getting some flack for something. And the fucking movie is a fantasy. Like, get a, again, get a grip on yourself. Like, can you not just, like, understand art and how people just... I don't... The movie is so cartoony. Yeah. It's it's all... It's like in rhyme. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's so strange how people, like, kind of find baseline criticisms and stick with them no matter what. Just well, them, the final you know. film that we have not talked about is his most recent... Which one? American Utopia, baby. Oh, America Utopia, yes. David Byrne, yes, yes, David yes. Byrne and Spike Lee. And, um, you know, I don't have a lot to say about this. I've expressed my love for this in many different avenues and, and, and places. You know, I saw David Byrne's American Utopia tour in Los Angeles and was just the best concert I've ever been to in my life. Spike Lee captures it beautifully in that film. He manages to it manages to be both david burns movie and spike lee's movie and that's an accomplishment sure. and he does it in yes. such subtle ways like there's nothing grandstanding about it he's not forcing his style on anything there are just moments where spike lee creeps in and you're like oh okay i see what you're doing and it's subtle and it works yeah. well that chanel Mo monet song yeah. i mean that's really where it's sort yeah. of wow you're like oh spike yeah. he, you know you made a mark uh, no, I completely agree with you. It's an amazing... You know, uh, he did a number of theatrical kind of presentations. Um, there was this. There was um, the Mike Tyson thing. There is obviously, you know, the... the, the uh, there was a, a play he did called Passover. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. that? Um, I saw a number of those. My favorite one of those was... There was Roger Guinevere Smith did uh, a piece about uh, Huey Newton where he played just sat on the stage and kind of played Huey Newton for like an hour yeah. and it's an, it's a mesmerizing performance and the thing that i love about spike and the way he inserts himself in terms of these theatrical productions is unlike a lot of other directors who do this type of work he incorporates the audience into the performance very in almost everything like you see the audience you see the audience react oftentimes these shows are very interactive with the audience and i just love that it makes yeah. it you feel like you're in the theater which like i hate when they do a theatrical performance and try to fake it as being like you're on stage with them constantly the entire time yeah. like no cut away like show me the audience they they and i love that you know passover is a very powerful play it's like fucking crazy powerful and if i didn't get to see 
a young student watching that performance i don't know i don't connect with it as much you know it's already a bit removed because it's theater and american utopia is a perfect example of that lots of cutaways to the audience lots of incorporation that this is a show and it's a it's a wonderful wonderful movie on hbo max right now if you haven't seen it and you're a david byrne fan or a spike lee fan you, you really should uh, one of his greats. One of Again, his greats. One of his, one of his greats. Um, so wow. we didn't do it in 90 minutes. We did it in about an hour and 45. But you know what? That's actually Dude, better that's than perfect. I expected. That's better than I expected. Yeah. So that's. I mean, I love how Cogman gets to do Coppola. Like, that's definitely a 90 minute episode. We'll, we'll <laughs> like, see. Easy. We'll see. Um, <laughs> but we, we will have chances to talk about uh, his films more. Uh, because we're going to dive into our individual top five Spike Lee films. But we're going to do that after a brief word from our sponsor. We are back from our break. And uh, I hope that we were able to shake off all of the energy from that uh, very, very uh, quick deep dive into the films of Spike Lee. Um but before we dive into the second part of this, I have to ask, Ryan, uh, what's, I mean, you kind of already given us some, but like, plug something. What's coming up? What's happening? Uh, well, on screen drafts, we've got some shit happening. You sure do. Um, you got lots of shit happening. Yeah, there's there's a lot happening. I'm, I've am i been studying so much here with, with between Spike Lee <laughs> and the X-Men. Oh, my God. <laughs> My podcast watching has gotten kind of insane and very schizophrenic. Uh, but yeah, we are doing the X-Men Super Draft, which I'm very, very excited about. Uh, those movies are bonkers, and yeah, that's just a lot of fun. I'm a big comics fan, as people know, if you listen to the show. Yep. And uh, yeah, so we're doing that one. We've got a couple others. Let me see what else is coming up. But, you know, I, I just, I'm just along for the ride on screen drafts, frankly. You just let Clay do but all let, the heavy lifting and tell you what Clay, to do. Because if I... Yeah, I mean, because if I'm, like, talking and being like, dude, we should do this and do that, it's just like, he just gets annoyed. And we don't do it anyway, so I just like... Are you saying right now, for the first time here on this podcast, that Clay Keller is a dictator? (laughs) Is that what you're trying to convey? I am not saying that. I mean, everybody, I mean, I feel like you, you should go on Twitter, at Clay Keller, let him know that... You know, he needs to change his dictatorial ways. Yeah, I mean, I do, you know, it's like, hey, can we do this show? And he'll be like, yeah, we can do that in 2023. And you're like, okay. He's got us booked up literally for like the next well year part of that's just, my fault and people uh, like you know. me who send him like ten thousand <laughs> ideas like, oh book us for this date in 2021 or 2022 and it's like yeah okay so a lot of that's our fault um it is it's it's true that said i i am uh i i you know i love doing the show screen drafts is awesome it's always great having you on billy ray you're one of our you're one of our favorites oh um, stop it i'm blushing time it's always a good time with the Billy Ray Bruton draft. Is I wish and, I wish uh, the relationships in my life had that same mantra, but so far that is well, it doesn't always dovetail. That no, it way. doesn't. Someday it might. Someday it might. But you you do have a friend in me, and I do think that we need to uh, we need to solidify that draft that we've been talking about for quite a long time. We have you know obviously our missing episode, yeah. but we we've determined that it's coming up. It needs to be. You and it I, needs to be. 
Yeah, you and I are going to throw down over. I, I think that we, I feel like we could do school movies. I feel like we could go somewhere else. I feel like too. we could. There's a part of me that wants that wants to go somewhere completely un un you know unexplored. But I, I'll be it's telling cool. you. I'll be. I'll tell you though. Between the Dave Schilling draft for the Patreons, uh, for the Patreon subscribers, my draft right. against the patrons for screen drafts, and the best of 2020 where I broke Drea Clark, I feel like I've been crushing it lately. Like I'm just. I'm really, I feel, and, you know, all humility, all ego aside, har har, I feel like I'm just rising to the top, and it's going to take a champion to knock me down, and I don't see that champion (laughs) right now. Where's your champion, Screen Drafts? Where's your champion? I may not be a champion, but I'm certainly a veteran. Oh, yes. I drafted, I think, more than most. But I I will say, Ryan... You were. I will say you were only the proxy for the patrons, but that didn't go. That didn't go. That didn't go the way. That no. that went. That went a. That went a bad way. That was, went a bad way. That was a rough ride. <laughs> uh, but beyond that, I don't have much to plug. You know, I've been, like I said, I've been living here at the Arrow. Yeah. Just getting this place super excited. I, you know, we're we're very very excited about opening the doors. Um, it's been so long, yeah. Billy Ray. You know, it's so so yeah. weird. And I just want it to be perfect, honestly. Like I, you know, between social distancing and just kind of, I don't know, you know, you don't want to go back into the same place. You know, you want to make it feel different. And we have, I have to say, I think that this place really feels like a transformed space. And by transformed, I feel like we've reconnected to the original Arrow. I mean, by just giving something a paint job, number one, you know, that really changes the way you look at something. Uh, But change the lighting, change the plumbing, change, you know, there's just so many aspects. I mean, just a deep fucking clean of a theater is is an amazing and beautiful thing. So the whole place is going to feel and look great. We've also upgraded our audio in in this theater, so... My God, there's a rumble in the seats now, which like that's that's just so much fun. But are there? Uh, so I'm really. Are excited. there any new candies at the concession stand? Uh, it's funny you should say that because I have added a few candies, oh. some vintage stuff. We now have Cracker Jacks. <gasps> um, I'm selling Mike and Ike's. Oh, that- I'm selling Lemon Heads and Mr. Mellow. I was about to ask you if you had Mike and Ike, <laughs> so that answers that question. Yeah. I love Mike and Ike's. Yeah. Mike and Ike's are the best, and I'm I'm considering Red Hots or Hot Tamales. I wish you had Good and Plenty. What a weird. I love Good and Plenty. I love licorice. (laughs) What? What? I love licorice. (laughs) Okay. I love it. Well, all all sorts of cool stuff coming up at the Arrow. Everybody should go back as soon as they possibly can because it's an awesome space and. uh, and you should listen to Screen Drafts if you don't already. I'm assuming most of my listeners mm-hmm. probably already listen to Screen Drafts. If you don't, you should. Um, yeah. Okay, let's do it. Let's talk about our top five spikes. This. Um, okay. Um, I always start, and I give my, that way. I like to. I like to dive in head first, and um, yeah. So this was really tough for me. Like, like listing my top five spike films was really tough. Yeah. Um. But my number five film is the first film on this list. It's the last film we just talked about. It is American Utopia. Uh, it is. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you why. It's because it's the first time where I saw Spike Lee really rein himself in 
in a really like meaningful way in the sense of like when you bring Spike Lee on board to direct anything I'm sure you're you I mean he he can bring so much to the table with that you're expecting that you know that sort of auteur lens that he's going to bring like and he could have done so much more to this than he did and I think the the genius of what he did was knowing that he was just sort of the custodian for this already like profound moving sort of remarkable material like it wasn't his place to go in and take that and sort of adapt it it was his material to just showcase it and where he does manage to find the ways to insert himself are perfect they are brilliant but they're not his because like the Janelle Monet thing is something that David Byrne does in his live concert he did it before Spike Lee ever got involved but what Spike Lee does with that moment is so simple and so profound and Mm -hmm. so moving and so to me just that exercise in restraint and just the like overall power of this documentary that's why it's my number five pick Hmm. okay good yeah that's that's um I didn't see that coming, got to say. Um, for my number five, uh, I know it was a point of contention between the two of us, but I am put down clockers. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I th- I just, for me, like, it's a mid-90s, like, spike mess. I kind of do think it's kind of in that, in that sweet spot of, like, the spikes that I love from 90 to 96. You know, I love all of those movies from the 90s, but, man, 90 to 96 just is killing it. And I do think that it's a it's it's a subversion of a genre pick that only Spike could do. I mean, I, I feel differently in that, in that regard than you. I do really do feel like this movie is a, a Spike movie through and through. And I do think that there... It, I, I did not expect that Delroy Lindo would be one of the great collaborators to Spike yeah. Lee as he is when you finally get through the filmography. I mean, all the way up to The Five Bloods, which is up there as well yeah. in terms of just monstrous performances. But Clockers kind of, again, has a real subtle, fucked-up darkness to it that um, I, I just responded to. And it, ha- it, has, it, it packs a lot into the movie, and it's full of stuff. But I don't know. For me, it's just it really worked. Yeah. It really worked, and it's it's a it's a genre that I do enjoy. I really do like like Richard Price '90s movies, and so to have a Spike Lee twist on that not twist, but sort of a Spike you know a Spike Lee illustration of of that material, I think was just kind of interesting. And yeah, profound, yeah. So. Well, yeah. I I um I get that. Like I I, I get where you're coming from with it, and uh, you know it didn't really work for me, but I I understand yeah. that it does work for some people. And I can appreciate that. <laughs> I don't know anyone else, actually. I've never met anyone who's like, Clockers, great fucking movie. You know, I just don't think it's seen by anybody. Really yeah. It's an unseen yeah, movie. I think it is, too. Um, that is a nice segue, though, into my number four film, because my number four film is the film that he made right before that, and it is Crooklyn. And um, I adore Crooklyn. I have since the moment I saw it. I think it is so fun and so vibrant and so emotional, and it the ending packs such a wallop. And like I said, I think when he is tackling themes like with of childhood, and I just think I just think he gets it. I think he understands it, and I think he really does a great job of showing how children see the world when when it, the the few yeah. times that he's done it. 
and um, this is just the, one of these films that I enjoy watching the most and I think you know again Delroy Lindo um, I think when we're talking about my favorite Spike Lee performances Alfre Woodard and Delroy Lindo and Crooklyn are right up there towards the top and um, yeah. I just yeah I adore this movie and uh, I, I wish I wish it was I wish more people were as high on this movie as I am yeah and I really do just to, as a side note uh, on that I, I really do enjoy about Crooklyn that you do get a sense of the parents and what they're going through because kids do see their yeah. parents you know they see their when they're they, they know what when their parents are struggling with each other and um, you know like they know what the fights are about Always, it's yeah. very interesting Absolutely. and I, I love that about this this movie um, I'm going to have a different number four in terms of tone and and uh, just overall spikeliness uh, for me my fourth movie is the 25th okay. hour yeah um which again, to me, is just a, an absolute perfect movie. Yeah. Um, we didn't talk a, enough about um, Rosario Dawson. Yes. Who I think it's really great in this movie as well. She, as Naturel, uh, is is sort of a you know a, a really difficult part of this movie. I yeah. think, but um, Rosario Dawson plays it beautifully. I think it's it's really she's she's such a good actress. I've I, I've always really liked her. And uh, yeah, she plays sort of the his girlfriend who, you know, may or may not be um, uh, a problem for him. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and it's great. But again, Brian Cox is really the the guy behind this. This movie is just again a bit of a, 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 a an elegy of sorts to New York City, and and Edward Norton is like one of the great oh, actors. Oh yeah, and, I mean it's Edward Norton and, and, just and Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, like you can't you don't get better yeah. than that. And then not to and that's not even mentioning like. Um, such a great screenplay and you know for you know for folks who are not aware David Benioff who you know Game of Thrones uh, did the screenplay right. for this and it's just an incredible screenplay it, it just crackles yeah. from top to bottom I really like the uh, scene where he goes into the bathroom and he's looking yeah. in the mirror and he just fuck you you know fuck this fuck that it's just such a weird scene and so great yeah, it's a, it's a it's an incredible film. Highly, it really it. is, and uh, it did not. Ma- I'm, spoiler: it did not make my top five. But boy, I it, I wish it it had found a place. Um, uh, okay, so my number three pick is um, when the levees broke, uh, Requiem in Four Acts, mm-hmm. and it is his documentary, his four part documentary uh, available on HBO uh, about uh, Hurricane Katrina, and uh, yeah all the things that we got wrong and all the systemic failures and everything that led to that being the disaster that it was. And, um, again, like we said earlier, like I think it's required viewing. I think if you want to understand how your government can fail you, this is the movie to watch. Um, if you want to understand how global warming is real, this is the movie to watch. Um, and it's just, you know, you can tell that this is a movie made by somebody who is angry. And the, and it, you can feel it through every single second of this film. There's an anger that runs through it that really comes off on the screen. But it's not, it's not put, it doesn't put you off. You understand it. It's an understandable right. anger. And by the end of this movie, you're fucking angry. Like, you're, you're searing with rage too. Because it's like, how did this happen? And, um... Yeah. As someone who loves New Orleans, who has always, you know, loved that that place, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just, I think it's it's powerful, it's 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 kind of perfect, and 
it's I think it's one of his greatest achievements as a filmmaker. And that is also my number three. Oh, there we go. We had some overlap. Yeah. So yeah, I think that 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 it makes sense. I think that this has to be on any top five in terms of Spike Lee. I completely agree with you, and it's um, you know, it, it's it's an incredibly profound film. Um, it speaks to so much about what we're dealing with. It's also a really sad and ru- a, a good reminder of how Donald Trump was not the first fucking witless president. Yep. Um, that we had in this century, uh, and that you know this was a just reprehensible. Um, response to this was was from our president and FEMA and yeah. uh, you know it really breaks down how fucking negligent yeah. they all yeah. were not only were they negligent in that in the in the after but you also see the the army corps and how they were negligent before it even started yeah. with the levies themselves so they were fucked before it even happened and they were fucked when it was over and the movie is angry. Yeah. It, you're absolutely right. It is a deeply, deeply angry, pro- maybe one of his angriest films yeah. ever because it just doesn't have, you know, it's not about a point. It really is just about everything that happened. It's just an account. It's an account of what went down and um, it's hard to watch, yeah. you know, just seeing pe- people die. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. on screen is just very difficult it's horrific thing. and it's so. and it's you know and it's it's not an easy watch and it's a, not a short watch like it's a long it's an involved watch yeah. like you really get into what went yeah down. absolutely yeah. but it's it's certainly necessary and um it, for folks who haven't checked it out again it is on hbo max so you can check it out on there yeah. and i encourage everybody to do that um so my number two is probably a little controversial because everybody's going to be like why isn't it number one but my number two is do the right thing. Um, do the right thing is a masterpiece. Uh, we, 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 we spent a lot of time talking about it earlier. I don't have a lot more to add to that other than, you know, it's essential viewing. It's a perfect film. It is endlessly entertaining, endlessly enraging, endlessly heartbreaking. Like it's all the, it's all the things, it's all the things rolled into one. And, um, I love it. Billy Ray, I'm af- <laughs> I'm deeply afraid that we have the exact same list. Oh right no, is thing. that your number two? Is my number no. two as well. <laughs> Again, you know, do the right thing is the greatest. It I will recognize it as the masterpiece. It just does not end up being my favorite. Yep. Same with and me. In my top in my top five, I'm going to speak to my favorite as my number one. It's just the way it is. And, and, you know, no one's going to argue about do the right thing. It's just, I don't know. Like, you know, there's there's something, um, maybe there's something wrong with us. I don't, <laughs> we might catch up. I mean, this, I mean, maybe so, because, I mean, but, I mean, let's be clear. 90% of people would probably say that he, that, uh, uh, that it's their, that it's their favorite Spike Lee movie. Um, yeah. 90%. Yeah. And, uh, I, I just, I like you, I, I. I love it. I, it just wasn't quite my number if one. We have the same number one, though. Like what? I, don't, I don't. I know this could be crazy. I, this could be crazy. Yeah. Um. Well. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm just Let's gonna dive into it. it. So, my number one is the film that of his that had the greatest impact on me. It's the film that I've probably seen the most out of all of his films. 
I bought the soundtrack as soon as it came out because I wanted to hear that Public Enemy Buffalo Springfield jam as much as possible. It's He Got Game, baby. It's He Got Game. It was the it's same for me. Game. It's I the can't same. believe that. What a wonderful like first experiment. I know. Isn't it? But let, let's be wow. clear. He Got Game is outstanding. And look, I, I have gotten into arguments with people about this movie because a lot of people will point out Ray Allen as a problem. And yes, no. he's not an actor. He's he's a basketball player. That's what he needs to be in this movie. Yeah. He doesn't that exactly he doesn't need to be an actor in this film. And when people are, oh well that's not believable, I'm like, it is exactly why it's believable. And mm-hmm. his you know, this to me is for me, Denzel's best performance. And keep and I understand what weight that carries with it, because this is Denzel Washington. But yeah, I think this is his best performance. I think there is such he, he is playing with so many complicated emotions in this film throughout, and yeah. this is a character that is not really a likable character. He is he's got, you know he's done this horrible thing, but he's also you know there's a lot of issues with with that character, but you just can't help but empathize with him the whole way. And there's a scene, and I know this sounds like it would be melodramatic and maudlin, but it's a very simple scene where he goes to the graveyard and visits his wife's grave, and he just starts, like, hugging the tombstone and kissing the tombstone. And it would seem like that would be so corny, but it is so moving, and I was, I'm just a mess every time I watch it. Every time I watch it. I, I think you know Rosario Dawson once again is great in this. Um, yep. I think Ned Beatty is great in a really small role. He plays the warden of the prison. Um, yes. Oh, you've got those. Uh, what's his name? Who played the cops? Who are? Um, oh, what's his name? Uh, it's uh, Jim Brown. Jim Brown uh, is yeah. one of the cops. Uh, cops and uh, right. Bill Nunn who's in this also great performance from him, who plays uh, the uncle, oh, who's God. really just obsessed about the money and nothing else. Um, yeah. That guy who plays the coach, he's he gives oh, a really yeah. like, fucked up yeah, performance. Yeah, he's fantastic. You've got uh, Zelda uh, Zelda Harris, who was in Crooklyn, who is also in this yep. as, as the sister. Um, Mil- Mila, Mila Jovovich. Yeah, Mila Jovovich is in this. Um, Wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this... The great Thomas Jefferson Bird as his as as, oh as, sweetness, as sweetness as <laughs> sweetness. sweetness yes absolutely and um, oh, Ro- Roger Gen- uh, uh, what's his name uh, Roger Jennifer Smith um, right. is great and he's got what like one or two scenes in this and he's just fantastic like I just I adore everything about this movie I think it is his most underrated film and. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I I listen to that Public Enemy song all the time, even still. Like that Buffalo Springfield so mix, and it's like I I love it. I just love this film. Yeah, well, you know, speaking of the music, I mean, to me, a big part of the power is the Aaron Copeland. Yeah. Score. Oh, it's so you know, epic. It, yeah, and it, it it grounds the film in this again kind of American parable. There's sort of this this deeply American. I mean, I loved. Even that opening with montage with just the basketball players and that the music, basketballs, that gorgeous music. Yep, and it's sort of you know like it recontextualizes you know like baseball as being the all-American sport. It's like no, 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 fuck that. This is the yep. sport that is played on every corner in in in, in America, and um, 
Yeah, and and just opening there, like the movie, I think it does so many interesting things. Again, like you said, Rosario Dawson's great in it, um, and that scene that that Jake confronts her is so fucking difficult because I don't know what Denzel does in this movie really is is just shockingly good. I think it's better than most performances that he's ever done, uh, and and most of that is because the arc he has to go through is so troubled you know like it's it's such a it's such a journey that he'll probably not be successful in and he knows that and it's also at the same time a taste of freedom after being in prison for eight years um him playing basketball in prison while ray is is playing while jesus is playing basketball outside there's just such a delicate touch that Spike brings to this. And that final, and it's, it's wonderful. That final moment too, where he he walks up and tosses the basketball over the gate, and then it, it lands yeah, in the I, in the arena with Ray it, Allen, and it's just like it's that little touch of like magical realism, and it's just yeah. it's just such a amazing finale to that film. I just I just got chills like yeah, hearing it, you say it, that. Like it's so. It's so much this movie. Yeah. It really, you know, in that scene you spoke of about him hugging the the, the gravestone, yeah. it mimics uh, the awkward hug that he gives yeah. Jesus on the yeah. court. Really, as he's about to walk away, he knows for certain that he's done what he could yeah. do to try to get Jesus to change his, you know, to do this, um, and that it probably won't yeah. work. But he just, it's it's a it's a goodbye. It's a goodbye hug. And it's so yeah, painful. Because, it's so because, hard to, because to watch. Because nothing really gets resolved in the movie for the most part. Like yeah. you, you could say that if their relationship was like on a scale of one to ten at a zero when the when the movie starts, it's at a one when the movie ends. Like yeah. there's no there's no big revelations or no big like resolutions. It's right. all very painful and very sad the way it ends. And and but also sad but also uplifting in a weird way because of that last moment where he sort of ties yep. them together with that basketball again and yeah. it just kind of brings it all together and it le- it makes you leave the theater even though the past few minutes have been painful it makes you leave the theater on an upbeat on an up note and that's yeah. i just think that's really remarkable in a moment of poetry yeah. you know it's that's the interesting thing is it's like it's not a narrative thing it's it's just a moment of poetry that spike brings to it but you know but you're totally right you know and there's there's a complication in that end he does go to big state yeah. at the end um but on the flip end um that that basketball game that they have at the very end is so cathartic yeah. for jesus and yet at the same time so painful yeah. to watch despite the fact that you've watched the alternative scene where you've watched jake abuse yeah. jesus on that yeah. court now the opposite has happened and it just it's it doesn't feel yeah. great, you know? It doesn't feel cathartic for the audience, but you know it's cathartic to a certain degree for for Jesus, yeah. you know, who is now moved beyond yeah. Jake. And that's part of growing yeah. up too, you know. Uh it's a, it's a wonderful film. I mean, it's just it's so profoundly monumental. I, I I would call it his greatest movie if "Do the Right Thing" did not I know. exist. <laughs> I, it, it, that's the that's the trouble is I, I can't call it his greatest. I can just say it's my favorite. And um, yeah, and I'm with you, man. Wow, like I love how we just three had the totally same top three. Up. That's insane. <laughs> so crazy. Wow. But but it makes sense, Billy Ray. I think we have similar weirdness in terms of our 
our movies. We, we certainly like. do. I mean, I, I will know. say just a couple. Like, if, if I were to say my six, seven, and eight very quickly, um, sure. My sixth would have been the twenty fifth hour. My seventh would have been mm-hmm. Summer of Sam, and my eighth would have been Red Hook Summer. Yeah, um, I would have had. I, let's see what I had here. I had Mo Better Blues. I had She's Got to Have It, and I had Chirac. So we were, we're, we're all, all mixed up except for those top three, and then those top threes are just totally in sync. And that's all that that's that's the only place it matters. Um, On screen drafts, to me, that's the only place it matters. Let's be honest. Yeah, who cares three. about the other four picks? Who the rest, cares? I don't care. Wow, we got through that. We, <laughs> we got did. through that. Hey, two, uh, two cis white guys got through discussing the oeuvre of Spike Lee. <laughs> Who knows yeah, how they'll nothing, take it? I nothing don't know. problematic about that whatsoever. Um, but, but what? No. Just what can I say? I'm a fan. What can I say? Yeah. No, I, totally. I, I mean, you know, like, I, I, he's a great yeah, artist. And he's yeah. really sort of like he's gone through these waves of popularity, sort of in the zeitgeist, and he's sort of at this new high, I think, after Black Klansman yeah. and Defy Bloods, and like. So I'm just like riveted to see what he does next because I'm just dude. He's doing a fucking musical. I heard about that. What's it called? It's like, it's called like Prince yes, of that's Cats it. or I some heard weird about shit. That. <laughs> I, I'm like, okay, down. whatever. I'm down. I'm entirely yeah. down for that. Like, I mean, we've been wanting a musical from Spike Lee for a long time. Let's be honest. You know, he's been teasing it with different movies, but I feel like a full blown fucking yeah. musical. What was he like? Yeah, was he like, well, Spielberg's this. gonna make a musical? God damn it, I'm gonna yeah. make a musical. He's gonna remake one. I'm gonna do an original. Yeah, I don't know if it's an original. I, I really, either. I'm just, I'm just bullshitting. Um, yeah. So. Wow. Okay. Well, that was, you know, that was a good first run with Spike, and uh, it makes me think that I, I, I've learned some things that maybe I can change up for the Coppola. Uh, and and uh-huh. for folks who don't know, the next from top to bottom will be in a few months. Uh, Brian Cogman of Game of Thrones uh, will be joining for a discussion of the entire oeuvre of francis ford coppola um which was his mm-hmm, decision okay. and then after that uh i don't know who we're going to be doing it with yet but we are going to be discussing uh the entire oeuvre of uh sydney lumet and so that will be after francis ford coppola and uh yeah i mean <laughs> lumet's huge I know. dude that's i know that's not 90 well, minutes. Well, now that we've established an hour and 45, I think I'm going to keep it an hour and 45. Just keep yeah, I think it that's there. good. Yeah, that's that's that good. I'll sense. just pretend like that was the plan all along. Um, by the way, the, on on IMDb, the unti- it's actually an untitled Spike Lee musical, and it is a musical about the origin of Viagra. Oh my god. <laughs> that sounds so fitting. It's going to be so good. I just good. hope that Delroy Lindo is in it. And uh, <laughs> he has a great voice. Does. What a great singing Put voice! Put Delroy Lindo in yeah. it. Let's keep that train going. Um, I would love to see. Uh, I would love to see some more Wesley Snipes in a in a Spike yeah. movie. I just want a whole song about Pfizer, like from the yeah. Pfizer board. We know Ro- that we that know Rosario Dawson can sing from Rent, so you should get her in there too. Um, Billy Ray, this is going to yeah, be great. I'm very excited about that. Uh, you're gonna have to come down to LA, and we'll watch it. At the oh, I'll be down together. to LA quite a bit, quite a bit for scripts gone wild right. and other stuff. Um, okay, okay cool. well, um, I'm gonna do some quick little housekeeping here. Um, 
dropping uh, our next episode is going to be dropping next Friday, which will be June the 4th, I believe. And we're going to be discussing the new film Port Authority with uh, Mr. Darren Navarro, a Screen Drafts veteran and the editor of films like Bug and Killer Joe and uh, James Ponsult's films and just a super knowledgeable cinephile and a super great guy. And so we're going to be talking about that new film, Port Authority, which I'm super excited about checking out. And so that'll be our normal format again, which we'll be diving back into. Uh, you can check us out across the socials, uh, at Movies with Gravy. Uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, follow us on there and stay apprised of all the cool stuff coming up. You can also support us on patreon.com slash movies with gravy. Uh, we're slowly building up our offerings on Patreon and trying to get that going. Um, so uh, join us on there for those shenanigans as they come about. Mm -hmm. um, Ryan Marker, thanks so much for being on, man. Billy Ray, thank you for having me. This has been such a great, great it, ride. I really have enjoyed revisiting all of these movies. It has with been you. delightful, and uh, I, I'm yeah. looking forward to the next one already. Maybe I'll just screw everything else. This will be the new format of the show. I would say that if every other podcast didn't just cover <laughs> oeuvres of filmmakers. And that's a lot of watching. I really still think you need to watch some of these movies to do to talk yes, about them. <laughs> I agreed, and it, it would be way it would be way you too know, much watching for me, which is why I haven't gone much. to that format. One movie a week yeah, is sufficient. Yeah. You've got it right. You've got it right. Um, you know, so okay, well, that's all she wrote. Uh, yeah, if you agree or disagree with anything we said, feel free to hit us on the socials yeah. and read us the riot act. Uh, we're glad. Throw tomatoes. Yeah, go right it's ahead. I'm a big, I'm a big uh, boy. We are two uh, white guys, very ready to receive the flack that we could possibly receive. Right, so, just like Spike Lee, I can take criticism with the best. That's right. Film. Come at us like Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Come at us like Clint. Bye, everybody. And that's our show. If you like what we're doing here on Movies with Gravy. The fastest, easiest, most awesome way to support us is via Patreon. You can do so at the $1, $5, $10, or $25 level, and you get all sorts of awesome perks, including weekly Patreon-exclusive mini-reviews, special interviews, early access to bonus content, and voting power to choose some of the films we discuss on the show. Visit patreon.com slash movieswithgravy and sign up, and help keep us doing what we're having an amazing time doing. That's patreon.com slash movieswithgravy. And make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other folks know you like us. You can follow us across the socials at Movies with Gravy, and we hope you do. Movies with Gravy was conceived of, produced by, and hosted by me, Billy Ray Bruton, and the theme song is Country Roses by Flannery Miles and me, Billy Ray Bruton. And remember, movies are great, but they're better with gravy. Y'all come back now, you hear? Country roses, blessed songs, mommy's here, daddy's gone.